Steve and Kevin review Eldritch Moon for Vintage on episode 55 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 55 of So Many Insane Plays, our Eldritch Moon Vintage Set Review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this episode, we've got an interesting development. The website MTG Goldfish, which is well known for Magic Online metagame data and recent decks for all formats, has just started accepting submissions for paper tournament results. Similar to what was Morphling.d, what we've been using, tcdex.net, there are a few other sites like this. MTG Goldfish is attempting to become a go-to source for both paper and Magic Online results. And I, for one, wish them luck, although I don't know uh, how much success they're going to have in courting new submissions. So if any of the TOs out there that are currently submitting to TC Dex or any of their similar sites, I would encourage you to, to spread the wealth and submit to MTG Goldfish as well, because it's always better, I think, to have more data out there among, even if it's the same data, but across multiple sites. We'll be talking more about data in future podcasts. Uh, the amount of data that's become available to us is has not only grown, but the kinds of data, the qualitative differences in data has also grown enormously. But that that's for a future podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's getting to be a common theme around here, and we like it. Steve, what can you tell us about the current state of VSL in the third trimester? Well, we are about to embark into the third trimester of season five. And the second trimester was, uh, I have to admit, a little bit miserable for me. Uh, yeah. It was a misery party. I, <laughs> I, Of all the seasons of the VSL, I probably put more work into my deck selection process for this the second trimester than any other uh, single trimester we've ever do- done. And so to, to go 0-3 was beyond disappointing. But, you know, and I, I'm not the kind of person who complains about my performance or harps about how unlucky I got. I don't, you know, in between rounds of Magic tournaments, a lot of players tend to tell bad beat stories, but I, I very, very rarely do that. But uh, I think you could probably attest to that. But I do have to, th- this is this is different. This is that uh, I got some pretty <laughs> bad beats. You got I, uh, some pretty rough beats, I can attest. I, I, I played a workshop deck, which, you know, I, I tested so many decks. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the decks I tested because I think there's so many interesting strategies in the format right now. But I ended up playing Shop Eldrazi, which, according to the data and my testing, was just the most consistently solid performer. And, you know, a lot of players last year who were traditionally blue pilots, like Rich Shea and Brian DeMars, and even folks like Hiromichi Ito, sort of jumped on the Shop bandwagon, you know, and did very well. And even Paul Mastriano. And I was, you know, stuck with my guns, played my gush decks. And only after uh, only after um, Golem was restricted did I actually end up 
picking it up for the VSL. And and I was surprised in a number of respects. One of the things that surprised me the most in testing is, you know, the, the stereotype about shop decks that I had always experienced from the past was that it's it's not a come from behind deck. That shop decks are decks that you need to come out strong and maintain a strong position. And if your grip on the game falters, or if you stumble, then the whole thing kind of slips away like quicksand. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth in my experience playing shops. In match after match, I felt like I was always in the game, and I always had the potential to come from behind. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's like drawing and landing a trike, or uh, you know, drawing a hanger back when you've got a ravager in play. The deck just has so many come-from-behind plays, it's remarkable. Uh, and I, did, I didn't expect that. I really didn't. I think you know one of the bigger come-from-behind cards is Thought Not Seer. Thought mm-hmm. Not Seer just attacks the game in such a different angle. And just you know the, the a little bit of pinch that you need to the person's mana often means that the best card will be sitting in their hand, like a Mentor or a Yawgmoth's Will or a Tinker or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I found that deck to be incredibly robust. And the lineup I faced, LSV, Randy, and Rich, I figured that um, I put I put Randy on Grixis. Um, I thought LSV would play uh, Landstill or uh, uh, you know uh, um, a Mentor deck, and I thought Rich would play uh, uh, Grixis, uh, a Mentor deck. When I thought there was a fifty percent chance he plays Shops. So because of that, I put um, I put uh, Worm Coils in my sideboard. So I, I think if you just line up my deck against those, the three decks that people played, you'll notice two things. One is that people were not prepared for me to play Shops. <laughs> uh, Randy had more cards that he needed to sideboard out than he could, so his deck would ultimately stuck with things like Sudden Shock. Uh, Rich Shea had no cards for the Workshop Mirror, and the same thing is true for LSV. He played a uh, white. He played Esper Mentor, which is has neither red nor green, which are the best cards against Shops. Mm-hmm. So uh, I believe if you line my deck against all three decks, I'm favored in all three matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the match against LSV, I mean, I th- I think everyone thought I was going to win game two. And <laughs> uh, I got, he literally, literally played Dig Through Time into Balance in a White Source against, yeah. against Randy Bueller. <laughs> Which I believe was really his only out. Yeah, his only out. I'd wasted all his White Sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, he needed to find both. He va- mm-hmm. he, it's actually more than that. He vamp tutored for Dig Through Time. Use the top to draw dig through time and play dig to get white source in a balance. His only out to not lose. He was at, right. at, at two life when I had a creature. <laughs> um, and then against Randy, uh, we went to a game three. And in game three, I literally lost six of seven flip, mana crypt flips. And if I win yeah. any one of those, I win the game. Right. If I draw yeah. anything, he, he was dead on board the if, turn you died. If I draw any other business spell, I win. In the last yeah. four draws, <laughs> you know, it's like it, it, my chances for winning. I think, it, you know, Ifro said it was the unluckiest game ever in the BSL. <laughs> and then, and then against Rich Shea, again, I'm playing a mirror where he has nothing to sideboard. I have everything to sideboard. Yeah, it's possible in game one I made a slight mistake by sacrificing the extra mocks when I could have played a Tanguar. I though I don't think so. I'm not sure. It was uh, that was a gambit that you you yeah, clearly I mean, weighed the options. Yeah, I have a five five creature. Against yeah. a deck that the, you know has no answer to a five-five creature, and then in, in the third game I had to mulligan to four. I yeah. still drew worm coil, was still in it, but I could not draw another creature to save my life. Yeah. So it's like, you know, what what do I do? <laughs> uh, you know, just sometimes you just can't you can't win. Uh, anyway, that's anyway, why we play the games. That's why we play the games. But yeah. but uh, you know, I, I'll just share a little bit of the decks since by the time this is is. Um, broadcast will be in the third season well mm-hmm. I'll, I'll you know there are a lot of decks i had to to think about 
and one of the criteria that I wanted is I didn't want something that was shop to shop soft to shop Eldrazi. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons I ended up playing shop. But one of the decks that I think is really interesting that doesn't get a lot of press is actually Two Card Monty. Um, and Two Card Monty is a deck that I seriously considered, <laughs> which for folks who don't know, it's a workshop-based combo deck that uses Painter Servant and Grindstone, but also uses Leyline of the Void and Helm of Obedience. And so you ha- you, there are a non-trivial number of turn one kills where you, mm-hmm. before the game, put into play Leyline of the Void, and then on turn one, you can play like Workshop and a Mana Crypt to play Helm and Activate. Um, I talk to people like Jaco and um, Ben Perry, who play a lot of uh, two-card Monty. Jaco likes playing with Dark Confidant in two-card Monty, um, and Ben Perry has had a lot of success with it. And I did I took their the list that they had done well with, and I did a lot of testing. And so I'll just share some of what I what I discovered with that deck. One is that um, Defense Grid is a card you really want to put into two card Monty because it seems like well this will protect your cards and you have shops right. Mm-hmm. But you also play with a lot of red blasts, which makes Defense Grid suboptimal <laughs> because you not only mm-hmm. want to use red blast with Painter Servant, but you also want to be able to counter blue spells on your opponent's turn. Um, so I actually put something into into it that I thought has been very effective. I've been playing two-card Monty with two or three-man deck Ether Sworn Canonists, hmm. which is interesting because not only does it, it's a turn one play, yeah. and you can actually play it off a of shop mana. It doesn't <laughs> disrupt have, either of your combos. doesn't disrupt either of your combos. It really is really disruptive against the Gush decks because mm-hmm. they, need, they need to, by definition, Gush needs to play multiple spells per turn. Right. But it also works exceptionally well with your Red Blasts because if your opponent mm-hmm. can only play one spell, they put a spell in the stack, your Red Blast is basically like a functional hard counter. So um, I've had really good success with Ether Sworn Canvas in Two Card Monty. The other card that I've been playing in Two Card Monty that neither Jaco nor Ben are confident in is Four Chrome Mox. Uh, Mox Opal, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Mox Opal. Um, and I love Mox Opal in Two Card Monty. Um, it just makes you so much more explosive. Uh, you have Goblin Welders, um, so you can do really cool things with Mox Opals. It's not it's not hard at all to get get to um, uh, get get to uh, three artifacts in play uh, so that you can actually use it um, and it does things not only like cast red blast or ether sworn canonist um, but um, it helps you win more quickly with helm of obedience with all those cards and it helps you cast leyline of the void hard cast it if you don't draw in your opening hand uh, mox opal has just been fantastic um, that's another reason i wanted to have ether sworn canonist is because i need more artifacts to make mox opal more reliable but uh, if folks are interested in testing with two card monty i highly recommend my approach with uh, mox opal and ether swarms well that sounds like a pretty good uh, status update for that deck it's uh I've seen it in action because I've seen Jaco and I've seen Ben Perry play it in person, and uh, it's fun. It's fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's an that's another good point. It's an exciting deck to play. Yeah. And although there are, there are times where you are going to draw badly, it does mm-hmm. have a lot of good outs. I mean, you can in the mid game just draw your combo piece and and win. Um, and, and also, you've you've got some nice other haymakers that aren't combo pieces too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's there's like Tinker and you know all all that kind of stuff, and there's two yeah. of those. Um, the other deck that I really gave a lot of thought and exploration to 
is Hate Bears. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think both Two Card Monty and Hate Bears, you know, and all these decks really show that for the first time in a long time, you know, with Lodestone Golem restricted, well, there have always been colorless decks in the format, usually Workshop, but then there was Dredge. But Two Card Monty and Hate Bears bring into, into view, I think, an expansion of the non-blue decks in the format. I think that since the restriction of Golem, there are more viable non-blue decks than ever before. And, you know, it's, an, it's a question as to how do you actually define non-blue decks? I mean, Dredge... If it has Chain of Vapor, it technically has blue in it. Same with the combo decks like, uh, you know, DPS, which runs, you know, six, seven, eight, nine blue spells, even though it's predominantly black uh, deck. But, but Hate Bears, four, four or five color Hate Bears, is also incredibly interesting right now, and is a deck I put a lot of time and thought into. One of the things I really like about Hate Bears, so Hate Bears has done really well, the Bizarre Moxon, but, uh, but. Uh, you know, I've always liked Hate Bears, but the the decks that have done well, like at the Bazaar Moxon, have not only do they use Scab Clan Berserker, which is incredibly disruptive, but <laughs> they use cards that I'm less thrilled with. I forget what the name of the uh, was it Mantis Rider, mm-hmm. the three three flyer, and mm-hmm. and I like playing Hate Bears. That is a lot more um, a lot more disruptive. And some of the cards that I really like in Hate Bears that it's harder to use in just the strict humans list, but I really like Gadok Teague. Mm-hmm. Gadok Teague is really really well positioned right now. The, the Ascendant Gush deck is Grixis Pyromancer. Well, think about how Gadok Teague interacts against that. Not only does it shut off Gush and Force of Will and the Delve spells, right? Because mm-hmm. you can't play, you can't play uh, uh, Treasure Cruise or Dig Through Time with Gadok Teague. But it also stops almost all of their removal because Snuff Out also costs four. And Murderous mm-hmm. Cut is a Delve spell. So mm-hmm. Gadok Teague is particularly potent against the Grixis Pyromancer deck, if people are looking for an answer to that. Um, that's one of the best cards that you can use. And and there are other, you know, Hate Bears configurations I really like, but, but you know, anything that runs Scab Clan, uh, Gadok Teague, Talia, uh, Containment Priest, um, Dark Confidant, you know, you've got a lot of game against a lot of decks. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So uh, where are you leaning right now, then? Well, I, I'm not going to play... I, I, I haven't settled 100% on what I'm going to play in the third trimester, but... Right now, um, you know, I'll just I won't say because I'm not sure, but but I, I, but <laughs> right. I, I just I just want to share, you know, that there are some interesting angles on some of these decks that I don't think people have pushed yet. So I'm just I'm just putting it out there that I think there are some interesting approaches to both Hate Bears and uh, Two Card Monty that I put a lot of work into, and so I thought, why not share them in the podcast? <laughs> well, thanks, and I I genuinely hope that you can stay out of the cellar <laughs> with a good performance in trimester three. Well, because uh, for selfishly, it's really enjoyable to have you uh, on the show and in the VSL and giving updates from that perspective. Well, that's that's very nice of you to say. Uh, I uh, I also would like to stay out of the, out of the relegation uh, tournament, but I have <laughs> to say the the play-in tournament this this past season has had been fun. And um, that's true. It wasn't all I, bad. Yeah, it wasn't all bad. The uh, the other thing though is that you know it's tough. To, it's it, it, deck selection is so difficult because. You have to weigh, you know, for example, um, I thought I played the Shop Eldrazi pretty well, and Montolio told me the same thing. The question, though, is do you weigh something that you're really, really, really familiar with? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you weigh that versus something that you think is maybe objectively superior, right, in terms of just yeah. statistics and performance? And so I, I'm in a place where, like, do I live or die by on the sword of gush? <laughs> right. You know, or, or do I play something that I think is probably just the best performer? So I, I don't I, I love that conundrum. I have been approached by a handful of uh, new or aspiring players over the course of the last few years, especially since doing this show. 
And my first advice to most of them is play what you know. I believe, especially if you're a newer player, the sort of player who uh, doesn't have time or experience to test everything, I put a lot of weight into playing what you're good at and what you're experienced with. Yeah. And I would definitely suggest someone, I'm not speaking to you specifically, but for our right. audience's purposes, definitely play what you're comfortable with if you're faced with that conundrum. You know, if, you, if you have the time and availability to get good at the objectively best deck, then do that. But uh, yeah, playing what you know, I think, is a really powerful draw. I, I think you're right. I think playing with what you know gives you lots of advantages. And the advantages are subtle. The advantages aren't just sequencing. They're not just, you know, weighing factors or intuition or sort of familiarity with what you what you tutor for or how, when to search. But mm-hmm. they're things like mulligan decisions and sideboarding mm-hmm. and, you know, corner cases. But, but you know, I think there's a flip side to that. And the flip side is I remember in a, distinctly in a previous season of ESL, I had the feeling, you know, I played – I had the feeling, this really strong impression where I thought, you know, I played too many gush decks in this VSL tournament. And, and that feeling came on for two reasons. One was that mm-hmm. people were able to predict what I was going to play, first mm-hmm. of all. And that was a disadvantage. And yeah. the second feeling was I had played a match, and I can't remember which match it was, but I remember how it made me feel, which was that if I had p- experience playing my what my opponent was playing, and I think they were playing a workshop deck, I could have won that match. But because I hadn't picked up the, the, the workshop, the Hangerback Golem deck, I'd just been playing against it, there was mm-hmm. an element to it that eluded me. And it, all I had to do was even play, even if I had just played a couple of matches with it. Mm-hmm. So while, while I agree with you, play what you know in tournaments, I think it's actually really important that players pick up experience with a range of decks and not oh, yeah. just stick to what they're good at. I think it's actually essential to mastery and growing as a vintage player. And that's why I had yep. so much respect for the players who were, I mentioned before, who were traditional blue, blue pilots, decided to branch out. I think that's such so important. And, and it's, it, you know, we conceptually, there's some, there's metaphors that really frame how we think about the game. And one of those is certainly the Robert Haunt schools of magic. And so when people think of themselves as, oh, I'm a blue pilot or a Weissman school pilot or whatever, they get trapped in that. And I think it becomes a trap. And it shouldn't be. Sure, sure. I couldn't agree more. If you can, if you can get even the tiniest bit of experience, especially with, for example, matches that matchups that you're having a hard time with, as you you alluded to an example where you had a a challenge playing against a workshop deck of a particular sort, I completely agree that sw- switching the tables and testing and whatnot provides invaluable experience. It all kind of comes back to, do you have the time? <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things that Magic Online is good for is getting you the time and experience quickly no doubt also the metagame of a league such as the vsl is a unique animal right you alluded to some of the the psychological things at play when you know right. your opponents and you know their proclivities that's right. the sort of thing that you can only get in very small metagames that's <laughs> or true prescribed fully prescribed ones like the league but, but many of our listeners play in local metagames or they play sure. in mtgo where there are pretty well-defined metagames and people sure. people know what you're going to play now, i distinctly remember Montolio beating Randy Bueller at one of the pre- premier events where Randy was certain that Montolio was playing shops and he ended up winning that event playing Oath. Remember? Mm-hmm. Oath, yeah. Oath. So, so that happens. And, and you know, I, I also think there's a flip side. It's not sufficient, in my opinion, just to, to, to play from the opponent's perspective, but you actually have to sort of adopt the mindset. I mean, you may recall when we, when we were playing Psychotog, you know, 13 years ago and struggling with the fish matchup. 
And I kept I played it from the fish matchup, but it wasn't sufficient just to play it from the fish matchup to understand. You really need to understand the fish player's perspective. Yeah. Not just yeah. the mechanics, but their perspective. So I think it's more to it than just a game. I, I think that mastery of the format requires people to branch out. That's what I think, at least. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, speaking of branching out, what's the latest on your gush book? <laughs> 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 well, I, I am I am proud to announce that the third edition has been published. It's out, um, and you can find it at eternalcentral.com. Um, it, it weighs in at over 350 pages, so it's no small, <laughs> small thing. Uh, it's uh, got 12 chapters, including an, and an appendix. And the appendix is actually like the most detailed primer I've ever produced on Doomsday piles. So if there's Doomsday aficionados among you, uh, I have all the piles that you'll want. But more importantly, a whole set of frameworks and heuristics for how to build and approach Doomsday piles. Um, it has a whole bunch of diagrams. The other thing is I've also got in there uh, um, the Gush Hall of Fame. So I have like the greatest Gush decks of all time and then modern Gush decks. And it, it's um, it's more – so the, the, the subtitle of the book is Strategy and Tactics. It should be Strategies and Tactics. Mm-hmm. But it's really – in some ways, the book is kind of like a mini primer on vintage or at least vintage blue decks because the way in which I discuss many of the key concepts are those that are much more broadly applicable than Gush decks. So, you know mm-hmm. – Detailed descriptions of how to use cards like Vampiric Tutor or Wind and how the differences between Vampiric Tutor and Demonic Tutor circumscribe or expand the range of targets you get. And deep, really detailed discussions, really high-level discussions about the, the forms of advantage, the four forms of advantage that Gus generates, and how you design decks to to achieve or pursue those forms of advantage. I mean, so it's, it actually builds out. It's like I start from the theory of Gush to mechanics and specific guidelines, really clear guidelines for playing with Gush, to the Gush Bond engine, to the range of strategies and strategic approaches, and then I, I, I break strategy into a four-part framework that I develop over the course of several chapters. Is there any deck that benefits more from a primer than Doomsday? <laughs> <laughs> well, not that I can think of off the top of my head. And, and it's, it's, it, there's a good reason it's in the appendix, because everything that precedes it in the book is, is useful for thinking about it. Um, but, but Doomsday breaks some of the some critical rules, right? Out of necessity, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah. And you know, people people may wonder like, what what's the difference between this edition of the Gush book and the previous? I produced the first Gush book in 2010. It came out in December of 2010. You know, just a couple months after Gush was unrestricted, and then I produced it was 100 pages, and then I produced the second edition two months later with 50 new pages, and that and I haven't produced one since. So hmm. it's literally. 210 or so pages bigger, twice as big. The whole thing's been rewritten. But more importantly, it's been five and a half years. So yeah. decks like Delver didn't exist. You know, the Doomsday Maniac Doomsday didn't exist. Um, it's just completely different. And, and even the rules that I had for playing Gush were less precise. They're much more clarified. They're, they're simplified, clarified, tons of examples. I, I wanted, you know, I've been working on this for years. I, I just it's a labor of love. I just wanted to get everything right. You know what I mean? I just wanted to be, make sure everything was clear that it could withstand critical scrutiny and historical scrutiny that I wanted to hold up and I want everything in there to be as accurate and clear 
and well written as possible. So hopefully, hopefully that's what it is. Well, I encourage our audience to take a look. You know him, you love him. It wouldn't be a set review without our Shadows Over Innistrad report card. Steve, it's no secret that Shadows Over Innistrad did not carry very many predictions of playable cards for us. In fact, we only predicted one card would be played. One card among the two of us. And it's no secret that for the likes of the Gitrog Monster, Sin Prodder, Brain in a Jar, Drawn Yard Temple, Era of Falcon, Wrath, Anguished on Making, Declaration of Stone, or Sigarda Heron's Grace, we were spot on. The one card that we were both most excited about was Thing in the Ice. Rightly so. You predicted three, I predicted five. The actual was eight appearances. Wow. So we were, we were pretty close. A couple of those eight were sideboard appearances, which is something you and I only briefly touched on. But regardless, we, we were pretty close. Uh, Thing in the Ice picked up a little bit of steam in the last month or so with a couple more appearances in some tendril shells, hmm. which was pretty exciting. A couple of unexpected results, though. Prized Amalgam which we discussed at a fair amount of length, especially, uh, you know, the, the various functions that it served in, in Dredge. And we both agreed that it had a useful and, as I would say, effective effect in Dredge. But we all thought it was going to be a little bit too slow. Well, turns out the Dredge community has embraced it a little bit more than you and I expected. We both predicted zero, but there were two top eight appearances for the Amalgam. I think one of the most frustrating things in doing set reviews is not, it's, it's not when you so, totally miss something. Because you totally miss something, it's usually because there's an unexpected application. They're like, "Oh, well, why didn't I see illusions donate?" You know, because it's just a <laughs> right. completely unexpected application. The <laughs> most frustrating thing about set reviews that you is when you totally understand the application, when you totally understand how it is going to be used, and yet you're still wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's like I went back and listened to our dark petition review a while back, and in the dark petition review. I, at one point I said, well, the first time you play this, you're going to get Necropotence. The second right. time you're going to get Yawgmoth's Will, and then you're going to get Tendrils. And then you're going to get Tendrils, yeah. yeah. And it's like, Which is exactly how those decks play out. Yeah, and we're like, <laughs> that's not playable. I mean, our conclusion was the card wouldn't see play, and then it turns out it's totally nuts. It's like, well, we totally foresaw what it would do. We, uh, yep. you know, it's like, And we were still wrong, because we underestimated the power of that thing, even though we saw exactly what it was going to do. Now, we underestimated, we both predicted that Treasure Cruise would see play, but neither one of us thought it would be a restricted card, and, you know, that was not foreseeable. Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't to say we don't get most things right, because I think we do. Um, but it, it's it's still frustrating when we know exactly how a card's going to be used. I think that's, that's <laughs> what I'm saying is the most frustrating thing. <laughs> right. So, so well, why do you think this is showing up? Well, my observation is something that you and I did not anticipate and that is the dredge lists that are succeeding most with um, with the amalgam are the ones that have become more grindy. The the best performing one in the recent results was Ryan Glacken, who took first place out of 24 players at the Deal Me In Games Power Nine series. His first place list has Force of Will and Mental Misstep, which mm-hmm. prized amalgam sports as a blue card. But the bigger thing is it has zero dread return. So this is a slower, more controlling, grindy 
uh, dredge list that is trying to avoid, it's trying to sidestep st- some of the typical hate, right? Because it's got mental missteps in the main, but it's also just trying to dodge people who are trying to get the dread return package and try and just grind them out just with bridges and the amalgam, which is while slower, also reliable and, and a nice medium range kind of threat. So I think there's a combination of factors. I mean, we saw how it would be used. I genuinely didn't think that a dredge list like Ryan's here was going to be good enough. And this is not an avalanche of results. It's only two results. The other top eight finish was fifth place finished by Nate Davidoff at uh, one of the Eternal Extravaganza 4 qualifiers. His list does still have dread return. And it doesn't even have force of will or mental misstep. It's just a list a typical dread return list with two prized amalgams. <laughs> so here Nate is hedging a little bit, just a little bit of extra juice coming out of the graveyard. So prized amalgam has a place, and I believe it is slightly more popular than these two results would would uh, reveal, because I think it's yeah. it's showing a few more uh, results in dailies lately as well, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Cool. So prized amalgam, it's it's here to stay. It's a it's a, not a key, not a linchpin necessarily, but it's a it's a key part now of the the whole list of dredge playable cards. And I think the most surprising result comes from Archangel Avison. We discussed it, we predicted no results, and t- to be very pedantic, there are no results reported on tcdex.net, which is our standard metric. But I know for a fact that Josh Pachusek first took first place at a 16-player event in that was in Allentown, PA, with what he's calling Avison Angels, which is effectively Blue Angels 2.0. It's a blue-white aggro control deck featuring all flash, mostly flying creatures that had two Archangel Avison, two Snapcasters, two Clicks, one Notion Thief, and the key card, two Moats. So he's responding to the Eldrazi Menace with Moat and playing nearly all creatures that... Okay, they're not. So four out of his seven creatures circumvent the Moat so that he can fly over for the win. He was very high on the list. Uh, it's one of his own design, and he thought Avison was pretty neat. But no one is really replicating this result with Archangel Avison just yet. We'll see. So it goes down as a, a half-win, half-loss kind of situation where we know someone is succeeding with the card, but it's not in our normal metric of tcdex.net. Anyway, so for review, Thing in the Ice was the only one we predicted, and we got pretty close. I guessed five, it was eight. Prized Amalgam is a little better than we thought, a little more playable than we thought. And Archangel Avacyn is still a little bit of a question mark, but she has proved herself at least once. Yeah, and you know we didn't really talk a lot about Thing in the Ice, but it's pretty much shown up in where we thought it would, right? It's kind of like a more mono blue gush deck, but it's just yeah. it just has not been able to hasn't been able to usurp either young pyromancer or mentor, despite its potential capacity to do so. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the three of the results for Thing in the Ice were from the same event in Berkeley. <laughs> mm. Ryan Maddox, Michael Lynch, and Tim Wells were first, third, and fourth, all with gush aggro decks that featured thing in the ice and so it's <laughs> it's a little bit of a flash in the pan in that one particular berkeley event but all three of their lists were legitimately different one with two snapcasters to go with the things one with a snapcaster a sulfur elemental and a click and then one that actually had the first place list had two scab clan berserkers mm. plus a snapcaster and a jace vrin's prodigy so everyone's choosing a slightly different buddy package to go with the thing in the ice in, those, in that particular event. And as I said, it's also showing up as kind of the only creature in certain otherwise Dark Petition Storm kind of lists. Or, or I'm sorry, Gush Storm lists, not Dark Petition. Gush Storm. 
It's also appeared online. I definitely remember oh, yeah. Rich Shea playing in a daily. I think it might have even appeared in one of the premier events. Top definitely. It did, it did make top eight in one of the premier events as well. So I think Thing in the Ice is also well, here to stay in a small quantity. Our predictions were pretty close on that then. Yeah. So. But that's it for Shadows Over Innistrad. This, this will be known as the Thing in the Ice set, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. But now we move on to Eldritch Moon. We'll start with Eldritch Moon, the way we start with all new sets, talking about the new mechanics and the returning ones. There's some exciting stuff in this one, although whether it impacts Vintage is here, uh, we'll see. The coolest one, in my eyes, is Meld. The Meld is, I think everyone's probably heard about it, but this is where you take two cards, and if you satisfy a condition, which is which is mostly having these two cards in play, you can flip them, because they're both dual face cards, and they combine into one creature. There's only three pairs of them in the set, so it's not it's not a pervasive mechanic. But these three pairs, when you get the right condition met, they combine to form one giant <laughs> threat, and it, it's pretty neat. It, it you know I mean it's it's a pretty unprecedented mechanic unless you count the uh, big frame monster from Unglued. But I don't believe that any of the cards that any of the cards individually or melded together are playable in vintage because effectively they're too unreliable for vintage for vintage and the either the individual effects are not good enough and then the combined effects well they would be good enough if you could just play them like if you could just oath uh bruzella into play that we would but you can't well there already <laughs> is a, a a meld uh a, a meld pairing in vintage it's called voltaic key and time ball <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good example you're right <laughs> and you put those two together and put one mana into it you uh you get to take all the rest of the turns they they combine to form key vault <laughs> so the next new mechanic from the set is called emerge now emerge is kind of like champion from lauren block it's where you uh sacrifice a creature to emerge another creature by paying the emerge cost and the cost is reduced by the converted mana cost of the creature you sacrificed so if the converted for if the merge cost on a card is seven and you sack something that costs four, you only have to pay the three to put this new bigger better the, creature into the play. Easiest way to think about it is like transmute artifact. You, you sacrifice uh, an artifact with transmute, and then you have to pay the difference. You say that as though transmute artifact is easy to understand, <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. You're totally right. The problem with emerge is that the cheapest one of the in the set is six mana. The emerge cost is, and there's only one of those. All the rest of them are seven or more. So uh, while it is possible to, in the vintage card pool, it's possible to do a lot of fun shenanigans like Affinity Creatures or the, the Sky Shroud Cutter or Allosaurus Rider, all the stuff that people have been speculating about. All that stuff's available to you, it's just none of it's good enough. And plus, none of the creatures are really worth two-for-one-ing yourself just to get into play. Well, Mirror Enforcer is certainly, and Frogmite are both pretty easy to cast, though, right? Uh, it's true. But the problem is, is that you're still two for winning yourself to get a a reasonably large creature into play, and none of them are really that good. And they all have cast triggers, just like some of the other uh, Drowsy Titans of the past. So the the emerge synergizes with the cast triggers. So if you cheat them into play, they're not any good, really. 
but we put out a call on Twitter for our audience to see what people wanted to talk about. And uh, Titus Chalk responded and said he asked whether any of the Eldrazi boost the archetype. Yeah, that, that to me is a critical question here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear that the answer is no. All the Eldrazi in this set are just enormous, enormous beasties. Like they, were, just, like they were back in when Eldrazi first came out. Uh, yes. The cheapest Eldrazi in this set, although the cheapest of the colors, colorless ones, I should say, well, okay, there's one exception. The Eternal Scourge, which we're not going to review, is a 3-3 three, three for 3. It says you may cast it from exile, and when it becomes the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, exile it. So it's combo-rific with Food Chain, but it's not playable it's, in the It's Eldra- a colorless Mistalo Griffin. Yes, it is. And But then, aside from that, the, the next cheapest of the colorless Eldrazi is 7 mana. And it's not even that good. That's the Wretched Griff, which is 3-4 uh, flying, and you draw a card when you cast it. I mean, that's not even that good. <laughs> so, so no, I don't believe any of these emerge cards from this set materially impact Vintage or the Eldrazi Archive. He has the stats of, of Serendib Afrit for 7 mana. Right. <laughs> right. That, that one card is worth four is worth four colorless mana, apparently. It's, it's only three if you emerge it, but it's worth another card, so you're not actually drawing anything, really. Yeah. I, I, Granted, these effects are okay. Like Lashweed Lurker is eight mana for a 5-4. The emerge is 5GB, or I'm sorry, GU, 5GU. It says when you cast Lashweed Lurker, you may put target non-land permanent on top of its owner's library. Okay, that's a that's a good effect, right? It's just still it's just not worth two for winning yourself to also get a 5-4 in Vintage and paying a whole bunch of mana. So I predict that we're not even going to review any more of these Eldrazi. That's not the ones with Emerge. We are going to talk about Emrakul. Let's get through the rest of the mechanics. Yeah, Yeah. so the other new mechanic is Escalate, which is a cool one. Escalate is where you can... It's kind of like um, Super Kicker of a sort, <laughs> where you can uh, pay extra mana to play modal spells with more than one of their modes. So most of the... In fact, all of the Escalate cards have two. Some of them have three or three modes. And when you play it, you pay the normal cost, choose one of the modes, pay the escalate cost, you can choose another mode. If you is pay it, the escalate cost, again, you can choose another mode. Isn't it's it's it is like Hicker, but it's also kind of a little bit like Entwine, right? Yes, very much so. It has d- shared DNA with those keywords as well. The challenge with these escalate cards is that the base effect, that is the effect that you get for the paying mana without using escalate, is overcosted across the board. So in vintage, there's a much more uh, cost-efficient one. To use a good example, one of the more playable effects is from collective effort, which is one white-white sorcery. Choose one or more. Destroy target creature with power four or greater. Destroy target enchantment. Or put a one plus one plus one counter on each creature target player controls. So exiling a creature with power four or greater is totally playable in vintage. Destroying enchantment is playable in vintage. But the problem is is you gotta pay one white white to get any one of those mm. effects that we're used to paying a single mana for in yeah. vintage. And then the escalate is tap an untapped creature you <laughs> control. Which is not out of the question to do in a Pyromancer or a Mentor or an Eldrazi deck, right? But it's still you're still overpaying for the cost of getting those two effects combined. Destroying a creature with power four or greater and destroying an enchantment is still the sort of thing that you would only want to pay two or maybe two and a half mana for in Vintage, not three with another cost tacked on. So that's the the challenge with Escalate. Most of them are cost four, limited, and their effects are purely limited related. You know, creatures, power, and toughness up and down, that kind of thing. Yeah. So none of them are quite costed aggressively enough for Vintage or provide a unique enough effect for Vintage. That's it for the new mechanics. There are plenty of returning ones from Innistrad in general. We've got the dual face cards with Transform, Delirium, Madness, Skulk, Prowess. None of that is news. This is a mechanic-heavy set. 
It really is. There's they baked a lot of new things in, and there's still a lot of graveyard interaction and, and transform interaction. So let's move on to our cards then. Let's do it. First up, Coax from the Blind Eternities. For 2U Sorcery, you may choose an Eldrazi card you own from outside the game or in exile. Reveal that card and put it into your hand. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a wish of sorts. Uh, Cost-wise, the cost is clearly playable in Vintage. Effect-wise, I mean, wishes are a, a Vintage playable thing. We've been yeah. dealing with burning and cunning and living and death all along. In fact, the White Wish, the original White Wish, is the well, only one that wasn't playable. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and there was the, the preceding them, Ring of Maruf. <laughs> <laughs> right. This this is the wish. I, I'm. I wish they had called it a wish. <laughs> right. Yeah. It really could uh, have. So the Emerald's wish or whatever. So how how good is an Eldrazi wish? I, uh, the obvious challenge is that the best Eldrazi decks that we've seen are either colorless or splash just white. Although there have been rumblings of those that splash green. It's certainly plausible that someone could splash blue. Um, I think Jake Odrazi has a, one of the large Eldrazi's in the sideboard. Like a, yeah, he has a Nulamog in the sideboard. So that's certainly something you could get with this. Um, yeah, I uh, look, Eldrazi are good. <laughs> I have no doubt of that. Uh, <laughs> and I could imagine being in a position where you would want to wish for an Eldrazi. I don't see any fundamental reason why this wouldn't be potentially good. I mean, you could, uh, you know, blue in an ancient tomb and get the Eldrazi of your choice, right? Well, that that is feasible, but I'm trying to think, are there, how many Eldrazi are you going to leave in your sideboard, yep. for one? How many good role players are there, really? You, you could have an extra copy of Displacer in sure, your board. Sure, that's where I would start, yeah. Yeah, and you could have one of the big titans. Yep. You could have, uh, well, so the, some of these Eldrazi decks, like Jayco's playing with a Worldbreaker, and some Endbringers. You could put one or both of those in your board. And there's there's got to be, even though I don't know them all by heart, there's got to be a few more good role players, like uh, ones that dodge removal or, you know, or are removal themselves, like maybe Wasteland Strangler. So it's pretty clear that there's enough Eldrazi out there with some specialized functions Yeah. that you could certainly make a case for a toolbox of sorts with with three to five of them in your I sideboard. I think that's right. I mean, you could throw an L- Endbringer, a Reshaper, you know, just just one. I think, uh, you know, your point about sideboard space is really well taken. I mean, we know that sideboards sure. are very limited, but the capacity just to shuffle around some of these things a little bit to optimize and then have this to, you know, to, to fetch some, I think that's, that's, that's plausible. It's worth noting that this is Eldrazi card and not Eldrazi creature card, Ooh, so, so you, you can get, get all... And all is dust. Yeah, you can get uh, is uh, war- is warping well. Are those things Eldrazi and cha- tribal and cha- uh, no, just- sadly they are not. Oh. El- no, warping well and the spatial contortion are not Eldrazi, which is bewildering. But that's the case. <laughs> I I'd like to point out that this it doesn't function the way other wishes do, right? It's it's so you can get it from your sideboard or from exile, right? Which is which is a delineation that the old wishes can't do now. And also, this doesn't exile itself. This just goes to your graveyard. Hmm. So, and I don't think that's particularly material with the Eldrazi we have right now. But who knows in some future set if they make Eldrazi that are more focused on recursion. I mean, yeah. the old big titans are, are have their reshuffle clauses, right? The original titans. So um, this would get shuffled in if you shuffled with the original three. Is it, is it also 
possible that you could somehow, I don't know, exile your own creature to be able to re- to get it back? Like with the Displacer, does that it just blinks, but it doesn't, I don't know. Well, uh, well the short answer is obviously yes. You could, So you could exile your own creature with Displacer plus Containment Priest, although right. why you want to do that is anyone's guess. You could do it for profit, though. There's, yeah. there's some legitimate reasons to exile your own things for profitable effects. Uh, and then this would allow you to get them back. I, I just don't see that being a basis for a successful deck, though. I really think I really think the only thing you're going to do here is get a one-off out of your sideboard that's just right for the mid-to-late game situation you're in. And I think Worldbreaker is probably the, the standard bearer for that kind of effect in a Jayco-style list. And maybe, I don't know, I, I, I don't... We don't have a true mid-range Eldrazi list that isn't a workshop deck right now, right? The only mid-range Eldrazi deck are the Thought Not Seer shop ones, which occasionally have a leather larger Eldrazi, maybe Reality Smasher in it. Those decks, I can't imagine this slot being good enough to pay three non-workshop mana. <laughs> well, the, yeah. the Jayco Eldrazi deck isn't isn't going to be splashing colors anytime soon, and so you're left but, with but a, a whitish yeah. white X yeah Eldrazi deck. Which could shift a little bit more toward the mid game, just a little bit more, and and maybe want this effect, but it seems super unlikely to me, just because I don't feel like any of the well, okay, here's the other thing, Eye of Ugin. Yeah, uh, Worldbreaker is not that bad of a card to have in your main deck with one copy, and because Eye of Ugin is already so synergistic with toolbox approaches, I think that's better than trying to make this work in an existing white X Eldrazi shell. And I think anyone who wants that effect is going to just put Ayavugan if they don't have it already. Maybe up their Ayavugan count and then put one or two copies of some specialized Eldrazi in their main. <sighs> I just think this is a little too... They could have costed this at two mana or even one mana in eternal formats, but they probably had to keep it at this cost for standard. So yeah, and it's just a rock hard place. Yeah, I mean, and another question. I, I mean, I always like to give all the cards the benefit of the doubt before we start tearing them <laughs> tearing them down because it's only if yeah. we give them the best possible light can we begin to evaluate you know the the downsides it, the the viability against the downsides um but but one question is if you were to run this how many would you run you know if you're gonna Ooh. if you're gonna play like let's let's just say we're gonna have four eldrazi in the sideboard like is using yeah. tutor targets which is reasonable like in burning wish decks i usually have like five or six you know maybe six targets let it be a four or five Eldrazi in the sideboard. How many of these can you justify running? Two, three. <laughs> you know. I was gonna say two. Yeah. It's funny that you see you framed it that way because most of the all of the wish decks that I can think of. Yeah. In vintage history, the wishes were part of the primary plan. Yeah, there are three or four ofs. Right, burning wish. Living Wish in Belcher, for example. Cunning Wish back in the Tog days. I mean, there is uh, Burning Slaver wish and... with one Burning Wish, but that was, that <laughs> yeah. was the, not the, yeah. Well, and none of the bur- none of the Wish decks that didn't have the Wish as one of their primary mechanisms and, st- and plans, none of them ever did that well, really. Not for you know, consistent periods of time. The decks that we're talking about were top performers when they were four of Wish decks. Well, there were cu- Cunning Wish was a three of in, in both Keeper and Psychotog decks for a long time. Yeah. But that, yeah, but I consider that to be part of the primary plan. It was right. a three of because that those decks drew so many cards, you right. didn't need four. <laughs> but I, so my point is, is that this this particular wish of sorts won't be the primary plan in any of the ways we just described. You're right. It's it's a utility mid game play. Yeah, 
And the way the Eldrazi decks are structured, you want to play a two drop on one and a three drop on two and a four drop on three and a five drop on four. You want to ramp right to a reality smasher and you don't want to take off turns two through four to do this. uh, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but the Mindslaver Eldrazi certainly calls for no instants and sorceries. And this is a sorcery and blue gives you instants Mm -hmm. and sorceries. Yeah, you know, you're you're not you're not wrong about that. We're we're burying the lead here because you're alluding to Emrakul, of course. But it's possible that if there were an Emrakul deck, that that deck would want some of these because Emrakul wouldn't always be the right Eldrazi. Right. So now you're now you're talking about a newish deck, uh, probably well, more controlling deck. It's it's conceivable to imagine an Eldrazi deck built with blue. I mean, just because we haven't seen that, we've seen it built with white successfully, uh, largely because of Talia. Talia. But it's I, I don't see a, a reason why we couldn't see one with blue. You know. Well, the reason is is that there isn't another Eldrazi that's as good as Displacer in terms of that's true. power to that's true. power to uh, cost ratio. But and also white is the is kind of the You're best right. disruptive hate bear color right now. Yeah, I, I, com- I completely I completely missed. Yeah, I mean the, there is a colorless Eldr- there is an Eldrazi that has white that requires yeah. white that's very very good. <laughs> there are plenty of blue Eldrazi also. Uh, like in modern, they were playing with the Sky Spawner, but the Sky Spawner is much less aggressive and synergistic from the Displacer. So it, what you're saying is possible, but I think it's not ideal. There's a ton of Eldrazi yeah. though. I yep. don't want to. I don't want to uh, dismiss Blue Eldrazi <laughs> out of hand just because no one's currently doing it. But I can tell that there isn't one that's quite as synergistic as Displacer is in the white deck. Fair enough. I mean, I, this card strikes me as potentially playable, but has no obvious home right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. Let's let's. I, I want to score this one. But let's remember to talk about it again when we get to Emrakul. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're going to end up speculating a little more wildly about Emrakul, I'm sure. Fair, fair enough. Uh, I, am I up or are you up? Uh, I'll go first because I'm comfortable saying zero on this one. <laughs> I, I, I'll join you. I'll join you. I think that's a safe prediction. Okay. I wouldn't be shocked. But, if, uh, you know, yeah. we'll put a pin in it, though. You know, Maybe we'll convince <laughs> each other with the Emrakul talk that this card goes in that deck. I don't know. <laughs> Next up, Mausoleum Wanderer for you, Creature Spirit. 1-1, flying. When another spirit enters the battlefield under your control, Mausoleum Wanderer gets plus 1, plus 1 until end of turn. Sacrifice Mausoleum Wanderer, colon, counter-target instant or sorcery spell unless its controller pays X, where X is Mausoleum Wanderer's power. So, right away, Curse Catcher and Judge is familiar. Now you might say... If you were a member of our audience, hey, Curse Catcher is a playable vintage card, right? And yes, but I would caution you that Curse Catcher has only put up two top eights in 2016, according to TCDex.net. Merfolk is not a is not a wildly successful <laughs> archetype, and Judge's Familiar has not put up any top eights in 2016, which is no surprise because it's not really played in any decks. It has been tested in some white X. Hate Bears aggro style decks, but the lack of tribal synergy means that the Judge's Familiar being a bird is basically right out. So people are excited now about Spirit Tribal or the prospect thereof. In fact, when we put out a call on Twitter, I think it was uh, Lisa Seeley who responded and said, Hey, do any of these, uh, I'm paraphrasing, do any of these uh, Spirit cards make Spirit Tribal a thing? Because there are a number of Spirits in this set and in this block. And this one, Mausoleum Wanderer, is possibly one of the best from a vintage standpoint. But the challenge that spirits have is not the la- is not lacking good cards, because there are plenty of good relevant spirits. It's they don't have the lords that 
the Merfolk tribe do. There's no two-mana spirit lord. There is one three-mana spirit lord, the Drog School captain, which is an okay card. But well, uh, well, slow, slow, slow so down far, for a second. Which card? Which yeah. card is the spirit lord? Drog School captain. What does that card cost? Which is a. It's three. It's one white blue. Interesting. What sets that from? I have no memory of that. Drog School Captain's originally from Dark Ascension, from the original Innistrad block. It's the the only Spirit Lord. It's a two two flyer. Other Spirit creatures you control get plus one plus one and have extra. Interesting. So, so it is. Yeah. Lord. Uh, the, the more relevant tribal aspects, though, are the other playable spirits in Vintage. The short list includes Spirit of the Labyrinth, uh, Eidolon of Rhetoric. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just blanked on a couple more. There are plenty of playable good, most of them at three mana spirits in Vintage. Demir Cutpurse outside. So there is yeah. some, yeah, there is some decent tribal synergy, but unfortunately the tribal synergy kind of begins and ends with Mausoleum Wanderer and maybe Drogskull Captain and then... Cavern of Souls. <laughs> There's not a lot of other synergies that spirits get for being side by side with one another, unlike humans, which have which have more interactions possible. So I guess that's the question at hand is would you construct a new deck? I mean you're not gonna put Mausoleum Wander in the place of curse catchers. Uh, that's obvious. So you're talking about some different aggro slash aggro control deck that would almost certainly feature some of the other currently played vintage spirits like Spirit of the Lab. The, the two best yeah, two and, best spirits, arguably, besides Spirit of the Labyrinth, are not actually cast, unfortunately. The spirit guides. <laughs> that's a fair point, yes. The two spirit guides are are quite good and heavily vintage played. There isn't another part of the reason why spirit tribe part of the reason why spirit tribal hasn't been a thing is there just hasn't been a one mana spirit that was worth playing, despite the fact that there's a dozen or more of them. None of them are good enough for vintage. And once you get to two mana, the list is still very short. Ironically, Bloodgast is a spirit, which is (laughs) it's not not worth you know it's not a worthless consideration given that it's a reliable threat. But possibly the best two mana spirit in vintage is a sideboard card, and that's Kataki Wars Uh, Rage. Yeah, of course, that's a really good one. That's a very good spirit. So that would definitely be a feature. Possibly not in the main, but still a good feature. A lot of people have pointed to the cool spirit lord of sorts from shadows of Ernestrad, which is rattle chains which we didn't even review i don't think uh one u for creature spirit two one flash flying when it comes into play uh target spirit gains hex proof until end of turn and you may cast spirit spells as though they had flash so spirit synergy there but not a lord so uh, there are some decent playable vintage spirits out there. Do they come together to make a good deck? And is this kind of the linchpin one drop that makes them all makes all of them better <laughs> as a whole? I'm skeptical, but it but we've had decent success with humans, five color humans lists, and that list was not didn't actually feature more than one lord in the form of the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly just built. That deck was mostly just built on synergy of its two drops and the disruptive power. Yeah, uh, disruptive or it, yeah, the disruptive elements. I, right. Uh, but there's no Thalia for this list. Well, Thalia is really the thing that makes humans. Well, work. I play. Yeah, I mean Thalia is really critical. But I mean Scab Clan Berserker and cards like Dark Confidant can definitely hold their weight. They can punch their weight. Well, yeah, the average power level of a human is just higher than the average power level of a spirit, partly because there's a zillion more humans than there are spirits. There are apparently about a little over 400 spirits in Magic, and there are 1,800 humans. Yeah, and there are are under 200 spirits that cost three or less. So, 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're still well, not. It's just not even close in terms of overall tribe quality. <laughs> I, I was going to say is that this card does have vertical growth, but it's it's tough yeah. to make it grow. The other thing is, I play formats where people play turn one flying man, <laughs> and this is a flying creature. Uh, it's, it's a flyer uh, for mana. Yeah, in the history of in the history of one mana blue creatures, it's actually pretty it's good. Really good, but it's that's really, really good. That's yeah. not really the contest that we're. Yeah, that's not the contest I we're mean, having. This right isn't now. <laughs> this isn't a Delver of Secrets, but you know, it it does have built. In, I mean. Think about Spike Tail Hatchling, right? Spike Tail Hatchling was playable right. in Vintage in type, type 1 for a good period of time, like in the early aughts. And to have... That's true. Imagine how excited uh, Mark Perez would have been yeah. if this card existed back then. God. <laughs> Load this thing up with curiosity and go to town. Uh, but, but it's, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, this card is, is in many respects, just better. Uh, I, I wonder, though, you know... If you're playing the mana denial strategy, it obviously makes this a lot better. I don't know how much support you need to to make this a go of this thing, but any it, you know, even a minimal number of spirits that are, that are like it's just so hard to imagine it with Spirit of the Labyrinth for the reasons that we just talked about. Because if you're playing blue, you're going to be playing draw spells, but um, just any number of other good spirits, you're almost yeah. there. I just feel like it's very close. I, I could be way off, but it feels well, like it's closer than it looks. I don't. I agree with you. I don't feel like this is very far off. And you could look for a few other non-creature synergies. Uh, the best one, even though it's still creatures technically, is uh, Lingering Souls. Right? Lingering Souls is a three mana sorcery that gives you two one one white spirits with flying, and it has flashback. This is a modern staple, or at least it has been in, in some time. Uh, that has great synergy with this card, right? It gives this plus two, plus two, uh, two turns in a row. I mean, that's, right. you're hitting for right. six damage right. instead of two. That's a decent synergy there. Uh, but, uh, but it's not, that's not game-breaking. I mean, yeah. that effect is okay. I just, I feel like there's not quite enough of these spirits to make all of the, to make this deck a game-breaking thing. Spirit of the Lab is good. Quite aggressive, well-positioned against the Gush decks in the format, so that's almost certainly in. And you almost certainly would have to play Lingering Souls, I think, just for power reasons, meaning to make the deck powerful enough, yeah. at which point you're playing Esper. So maybe you work Bloodgast in? I, I yeah. don't know. For some recurring? I, I don't know. It's it's going to be close. It's going to be close. Now, let's let's reframe then. Ignoring the tribal synergies entirely, could this be better than a Judge's Familiar? I can't imagine how. Because if it's only ever a 1-1, right. then it's functionally the same as Judge's Familiar in a, in a right. mono blue right. deck, that is. Because um, otherwise, the effect is just exactly the same. Yeah. So I think if there was any non-tribal deck, it would already you would already be seeing it. Because Judge's Familiar would be that effect, lacking the tribal synergy. <clears throat> I just don't think it's there. I think it's close. Maybe one or two more spirit printings of quality. Another one drop, another two drop. It doesn't no, have to be as good as Thalia. Yeah. But uh, just, just some other linchpin might more push us over the top. Yeah. yeah. Some of the cards that are called spirits and those that aren't just seems random. I mean, I don't know. It's just, I mean... <laughs> You're not wrong. I mean, some cards are human wizards and some cards are spirits. And uh, anyway... <laughs> You know, you know what I'm reminded of? I just had this flashback to um, Wizards. You remember back at the Soldiery, the old Wizards lists? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and I'm uh, there. There was it was not a very powerful list in the set in the traditional sense of power, but it had lots of little synergies. You know, multiple wizards with the Void Mage Prodigy, and uh, I don't even remember what the whole rest of the list had. Uh, it have, I remember it had uh, Aether Vials though. So maybe I'm maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe it's just a matter of playing a spirit out on turns two, three, and four is good enough to turn this into an effectively two-power beater when you want it to be. And then a couple of spirits have flash, the rattle chains if you want, or you could use Aether Vile to give them effectively flash, which would allow this to counter for up to two, maybe three if you did it really? right. Really? Interesting, yeah. And if you got rattle chains, which I don't like, it still turns this into a, a spell pierce of sorts, and you can't really cheat lingering souls onto the stack with any reliability but you could flash a rattle chains <laughs> and another spirit in for two or for three or four mana effectively making this mana leak of a sort i don't know it's close yeah it's and close. <laughs> this, the fact that this has flying has a certain advantage over humans in that this wears a gta much better than most of the humans do because those humans decks are all on the ground in the early turns yeah you know <laughs> there there i think there's i think we need to dive a little bit deeper but it is interesting that the larger this gets, the less you'll want to sacrifice it. Well, it's, it's ephemeral, though, right? If it's your turn, I would say you're incentivized to get the get the damage in. If it's their turn, the damage is. If this goes to much. like a four power thing, I mean that becomes a short clock versus like, do I want to get a little bit of tempo by countering an instant or a sorcery? You know, for example, so if this is a three three. Would you sacrifice it to try and counter a gush? It sounds like you're forgetting that this is until end of turn. This doesn't get counters. Ah, good point. I completely missed that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's all no, ephemeral. These are, these it's all vertical growth. It's temporary. Yeah. Yeah. It's temporary. It's, this is not even as good as Query and Dryad. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, when I said earlier, uh, I did not see the until end of turn clause. Yeah. Yeah, that's critical. So it, yeah, the only the only reason to play other spirits is to buff this for it's a little bit and of damage on your turn. <laughs> But, right, but then if you can get them with flash, then you can counter spells from further away with its sacrifice ability. Those are the two reasons to have the tribal. The other thing at all. is, so so if you go turn one this, and then you do another turn two. So let's say you go turn one this, and then turn two spirit of labyrinth. This, mm-hmm. and then if you can back it up with like a wasteland, you could you might be able to counter some good spells with this. Granted, granted, and such a deck would have to have additional disruptive elements. Aside from its creatures, I would think. And my guess is such a deck would probably still be playing Thalia, because Thalia is just so good. But that's debatable. Um, But either way, you're you're probably right. This is probably a Wasteland deck. This could be uh, the sort of deck that runs Aether Vial, or it could be the sort of deck that runs um, Stony Silence. Probably the Nolrod Stony Silence. But I like the fact that it protects your second threat. Because it's it's whenever you play, not resolve, right? I mean, you gain this... Uh, You mean... Oh no, I'm sorry. It's enter the battlefield. Yeah. Oh, this battlefield. card is just weaker by the minute. <laughs> the, the, the tokens are, are the uh, the power isn't permanent. It's a, uh, okay. Yep. So I, I feel like the deck is mostly built when you look at the playable spirits. I feel like this Spirit of the Lab and Lingering Souls and probably Drog Skull Captain. Although I could be wrong on that one. And at which point you're just mirroring a human's list. And you probably would be incentivized to play Thalia, and you'd probably be incentivized to play Gite, and Swords to Plowshares, and Stony Silence, and it's going to look a lot like humans with different creatures. Yeah, and the only reason to play this over <laughs> Judge's Familiar is that it's a spirit, so it's protectable with caverns, and it has the potential right. to get a little bit larger. Yeah, you're going to get a little extra damage. 
<clears throat> and who knows? Maybe you want a deck that has six to eight one drops, yeah. uh, four spikes. <laughs> so maybe this, now there's a pl- now you can play uh, with twelve of them if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> right, and maybe it's an all flying deck. Maybe it's a this judges familiar rattle chains lingering souls moat deck, for example. Uh, so who knows? I, I I think this is I think this is vintage playable, and I won't be surprised if someone tops eight top eights with it. I don't think this becomes a new archetype or a new mainstay without future printing. That assessment sounds right to me. Yeah, I mean we have enough cards like this to have confidence when it appears and when it doesn't. We also yeah. have limitations in terms of the card pool spirit. So I think you're right. I think that's as close as we can possibly get. And given the numbers I quoted right up front, zero judges familiars this year, two curse catchers. It's clear. It's pretty clear to me that the spirit tribe as a whole is not as potent as the merfolk tribe is. I, I believe that that's a reasonable statement, but there are clearly differences between the two. Merfolk aren't as disruptive as spirits can be. But I still think there's no way that this becomes more popular than curse catcher. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that that doesn't hold water in my eyes. So I'm comfortable going zero. I won't be surprised with a one or a two. What do you think? Um, I think we're not going to see any of these appear. Okay. Let's move on to unsubstantiate. One U. Instant. Return target spell or creature to its owner's hand. I love this card. And not because I think it's my pet card or anything or because I'm destined to play it. I love it because it defies analysis in so many interesting ways. <laughs> I love it because it has obvious parallels that don't hold up under very close scrutiny, like Remand, for example, or Vapor Snag. I just love the way it twists people in their ability to assess it. I've read a number of assessments of this from amateurs and pros, and I just think it's fascinating the range of responses you get. But we're talking about vintage here, so let's give a little bit of context. In 2016, there have been three top eight appearances by Remand. Of those three decks, there were four total copies of Remand. (laughs) That was one, two, and one. Also in 2016, there have been three appearances by Vapor Snag, all of which were one-ofs in uh, aggro decks of of some sort. The two obvious parallels in terms of playable cards in vintage are very low quantity, Remand and Vapor Snag. But this card is simultaneously both of them and neither of them. How do you feel? Well, I think the starting place for this card is to understand that it's a tempo threat. Or threat, it's a tempo card, a tempo play. We've seen a lot of tempo plays in Vintage over the past. If you want to go way back, one of my favorite tempo cards going way back is Submerge. um, Which was, for a period or for a brief time, one of the best cards you could use in the Grow Mirror. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we we have cards like Remand in the format, which is probably one of the closest analogs to this card. But the the question is: Is there a scenario where the tempo, value, and scope of this card outweighs the obvious de- deficits? Um, I think the answer mm-hmm. is there are lots of places where tempo matters more than pure card advantage and vintage. Uh, I just don't know if it's enough to justify inclu- running this over counter spells that are really strong. But but just to, just to frame it mm-hmm. as concisely as possible. So we've got cards that can counter spells. We've got cards that can bounce creatures, but this can do both. <laughs> so is the <laughs> is the returning you know is the fact that it doesn't actually counter a spell drawback outweighed by the fact that this card can both momentarily counter a spell, so to speak, and or bounce a creature. And of course, this can also target cards that are uncounterable because it doesn't counter the spell; it just removes them from the stack. Mm-hmm. So it means like things like. Um, Mindbreak trap, yeah, cavern, cavern. P- 
plays. And in a format where Cavern is ubiquitous, that's no small thing. No small mm-hmm. thing at all. Um, I think this is really interesting. I don't. I don't have an answer. I think. I think the. I, well, I think. I mean, I think the beginning. I think when it comes to analyzing many of the cards in vintage, in order to begin to search for an answer, you first have to have the right question. And I think that's the right question. So. <laughs> I, I like talking about where this card is good. Sure. You 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 proposed that a minute ago about the the wish card of sorts, uh, talking about let's not dismiss it until we understand where it would be at its yeah. best, right? So where do I really want this in vintage right now? Uh, creature, I don't really want it to bounce creatures. Yeah. There are plenty of cheap, easy ways to deal with creatures. There's and there's a card that's directly cheaper and better than this in Vapor right. Snag, right? So I feel like the creature bounce is the additional effect that you're getting for the the remand effect of sorts right that's how that's how i feel about it so when i'm looking at this card i want to be remanding things with it so i want to be playing it against all the cavern decks it's one of the better answers to a turn one thalia off of cavern aside from swords to plowshares i don't i'm not saying it's better than swords to plowshares i'm saying it's one of the better answers because if you go fetch land mox jet go and they go cavern mox thalia right you're not force of willing it. You're not using fluster storm or mental missteps. So you're down to in current lists that are blue, blue, blue based. You're mostly down to removing that Thalia and you're mostly using either bolt or snuff or plow right now. Mostly this is, I mean, on curve to, to use the tempo metric, this is just as good as any of those for the purpose of that turn and possibly partly into the next one, because you can just put that Thalia right back into their hand. Yeah, it's it's not as good as permanent removal, but for the purposes of their game plan, it's not it's not a terrible play either, right? You're pushing them to the next turn, which means you're pushing back the displacer, which would have come down on turn two or worse, the thought not seer. And so you're, you're you know it's a serious tempo play against these cavern decks, which are mostly designed to play one threat a turn for the first four or five sure. turns. It's also really good against any deck or or play that requires additional resources to be sunk. It's good play against Tinker. Yeah, yeah. It's a good play against. For- <laughs> it's a very good play against Force of Will, especially if you're trying to play the long game. Force of Will is a tricky one because you put it back in their hand and they might be able to just cast it again, but they might not. And it also depends on when you're where you are in the game. If it's a game-ending stack, then it's not good. But on the first couple of turns, if you're just jockeying for position, this is a nice play on a Force of Will. It puts the- it could put them in an awkward spot. And it's also good against, as you alluded to already, anything that's uncounterable. But I'd like to point out, too, how there are multiple creature decks, aggro control and gush decks right now that are predicated on the sequence of their spells being very important. Young Pyromancer and Mentor need to come down before the gushes that would fuel them. And so if you unsubstantiate a Young Pyromancer on the second turn, that kind of throws their schedule off, right? It, it means you have to recast the Pyromancer before you're gushing next turn, and then, according to your gush book, you're not maximizing the gush mana the way you want to. <laughs> you're still getting your gush mana, it's just you're not, you're not operating as efficiently on turn three. So all these tempo plays really are screwing up decks and vintage, which, which have some pretty firm schedules. Yeah, I mean, this card would be much more devastating if the format was more firmly shaped by vertical growth creatures rather than horizontal growth. I mean, it's just it would obviously screw with the Quirion Dryad, you know. You know, oh, yeah. um, but but I think your point's well taken. The other the other thing that's interesting is I, I think when you were talking about possible applications, one another application that comes to my mind is 
what is what's a circumstance in which you actually don't care or are less concerned about the lack of card advantage aside from the obvious tempo circumstance tempo which i define tempo as i think most define as generating additional time usually through a threat so like i have a creature on Mm -hmm. the table and so i'm temporarily counting your spell to buy time um or whatever to you to buy time could be mana denial could be whatever but another mm-hmm. circumstance would be if you have something that punishes them for having to replay a spell so you know extreme example would be like black vies like making their hand bigger but mm-hmm. a, but a more realistic example would be something like mystic remora or scab clan berserker right um mm-hmm. or and very relatedly something that makes it unable for them to cast that spell like wasteland. yeah yeah exactly so if you're if you're pyromancer playing opponent goes fetch out a Valk on turn one fetch a Valk play a mox young pyromancer and you unsubstantiate it and then wasteland their Valk there are it's not a sure thing but there are many right. scenarios in which you'll pre- have prevented them from playing that so pyromancer the question the then turn. becomes would it have better better just to have a mana leak there uh mana leak you know or or is unsubstantiate better uh i think in that example it's pretty clear that the mana leak would have been better you'd rather just counter the pyromancer but you you would play unsubstantiate for the other scenarios where mana right. wouldn't work, like with cavern and uh, and I did say it earlier, but like with abrupt decay. Yeah, yeah, abrupt decay is interesting. Uh, Oath is a card actually is a great example of a tempo play where you don't need you don't need yeah. to counter something permanently. You just need to counter it right now. I wonder if that I wonder if yeah, actually that's, that's the ideal home for this. If if you're dealing with with things like well, abrupt decay, there's the answer, right? I I think that's legitimate. Yes. That's a good point because similarly, um, yeah, abrupt decay, also containment priest, yeah. you know, threats that yeah. people deploy right at the perfect moment, <laughs> right at one critical juncture, yeah. right? Exactly, and you can catch someone when they can't deal with it. And it's it's good. You're right because it's in the oath context. That is, you're the oath player. It's good at fighting most of the traditional answers. It's not okay. It's not very good against cage. <laughs> Technically, you can return yeah. a cage to someone's hand, but it's only going to be effective well, if they've only got but, that but one. We've got, we, we uh, now but we've still it, abrupt decay. Yeah, we ne- we now inhabit a format where cage has waned uh, as priest has waxed so uh, yeah. i think that's less of a concern it isn't to say you won't face cage but it's clear that priest is the preeminent anti-oath tactic in the format yeah i agree so i i feel like okay so you moved you pivoted to something that i should have said before when i was listing examples but all the things that i said before about good tempo actions assume that you're making good use of the time <laughs> that you have bought yes. right so you're either talking about a creature-based deck that's applying pressure or damage a combo usually, based in, yeah. or, or a deck that's going to end the game. So this seems like a decent card in Doomsday, for example. Uh, the cost might be a little too high. Doomsday seems to be very mana-intensive, right? The, co- the spells yeah. it plays. But thematically, at least, this is fighting that one thing that they're using to disrupt you either pre or post doomsday yeah the the one thing you can't do with this is put a sudden shock into their hand (laughs) (laughs) true true i feel like this is i feel like this is a vintage playable card i feel like it goes in place of vapor snags (laughs) which doesn't see any play but yeah which has three copies so far this year I think I don't think it actually goes in place Whoa. of remains. Where did, where did Vapor Snags he play again? It was mostly uh, in aggro control decks. We're talking about bug, um, fish decks, yeah, of of different derivations. There was one in a Jace control deck, but that Jace control deck was listed as control, but it had Dark Confidants and Deathrite Shamans. So, 
uh, yeah, it's mostly an aggro control card and entirely a one-of. In, in this sample set from 2016, it was only ever a one-of. And it's probably to do with Snapcaster Mage, right? So people use Vapor Snag as a, I wouldn't say a finisher, but obviously it's superior to Unsummon in, in that role in an aggro control deck to get that last few points of damage through. But I do feel like the flexibility that Unsubstantiate provides is probably greater than that one damage. And also, Vapor Snag is uh, Vapor Snag is probably a holdover from the Lodestone Golem environment too, and I think that Unsubstantiate is probably better in the Cavern world. It's funny we're talking about these tempo plays. I was just looking at a Legacy deck not long ago that had in its sideboard both one Submerge and one Vapor Snag. So, so these mm-hmm. tempo plays do exist in these formats. Yeah, you can't load your deck full of them because they're ephemeral <laughs> by definition. So, I but I do believe this is a a one of maybe a two of in, in certain lists these days. The Pyromancer decks lately have gotten away from being as tempo based as the old Bug decks were, but that's mostly I think because those Bug decks were also Wasteland decks. You could afford to be a tempo deck in a deck that had Wastelands. The Pyromancer decks these these days don't fight on that axis very much. Why doesn't Set Adrift see more play in the format? I think it's because there's already a, a already a density well, of delve basically, and murderous cuts taking yeah, that but role. This card can bounce. I mean, this card can bounce moat. It can bounce planeswalkers. You know. Yeah, you're you're not wrong. Uh, murderous cuts slightly easier to cast, and I guess murder cut people don't murderous like cut is one less. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you though. Set adrift is probably more vintage playable than people think it is, but we'll see. Well, some people have been very, very harsh on substantiate. I think Wapla said something like, "When has a card that does this ever seen play in the format?" I, I think that's an over. <laughs> uh, that's probably too strong of a statement. Um, well, we have our answer right here. It's seen play about six times <laughs> this year. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I I don't know. I think we know what factors will be weighing in here. Uh, I could see, imagine it seeing play, and I could also imagine it not not seeing any play. Um, Reman tends to show up yeah. in those kind of like uh, Spanish gush decks, right? Like the more you know, almost blue type decks, as they call them, right? The Reman appearances this year have been all over the board. One of them, there was one copy in Matt Murray's Dragon Lord Ojitai Mana Drain deck. It was a, uh, it was basically miracles. I mean, he had Terminus. It was basically ah. vintage miracles. Then there was one that was just a Jace control deck with Snapcasters, but it also had intuition and accumulated knowledge. So that's weird. <laughs> and then there was one in a landstill list. Yeah, well, Reman also draws a card, so, so it's not it's not it's you don't lose card advantage on it, no matter what. Right, right. but it was a one or two of in those lists. So but what analyzing I'm saying its is, purpose in those. What I'm saying is, is <laughs> offering Reman as an answer to that the concern about the card disadvantage is not is not a, a viable response because it's card neutral always. Yeah, it's totally it's the, from that perspective these cards are completely yeah. different. Um, I agree with you. Remand in a in a deck like Landstill, a remand you are you're very likely to draw another answer off of the remand to whatever it is you're addressing with the remand, right? Unsubstantiate doesn't have that benefit. It's a totally different animal. That's why I think it's probably more akin to Vapor Snag. And anyone who would play a Vapor Snag in this day and age would likely consider Unsubstantiate's flexibility instead. But let me point out, the last time uh, Vapor Snag made a top eight was back in March. So it's not even recently. Yeah. <laughs> Vapor Snag is not a common thing in the format. If this takes that function, we might see it once between now and our next report card. 
Well, we've we've explored a range of applications. We talked about an oath. We talked about in tempo decks. Uh, I, you know, there are ways to get even more tempo with it. Uh, I like the fact that mm-hmm. you can, like, for example, stab caster to bounce the creature again, or something like that, or Jace Brin's Prodigy to flash it back to bounce the creature mm-hmm. again, so you can continue to generate tempo. Um, it's worth noting your example of Oath contravenes the two cards we're comparing it to most, because Oath wouldn't play Remand and Oath wouldn't play Vapor Snag, but Oath might play well, that, that just goes to show you the different functionalities that that uncounter yeah. dealing with uncounterability both because of cards like Abrupt Decay and Cavern of Souls is quite real. Yeah, it's, it's huge. It's real. Yeah. It's, and it's something that Remand or Vapor it's Snag don't spirit, do really as well. Cavern of Souls changes the equation in the format. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that you yeah. can bounce a cavern or even put it into the hand, so it's uh, not bounce a cavern, bounce a spirit that is on the stack with the cavern is no small thing if you're an Oath pilot. No small thing at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think this is more, I think to, to that end, I think in the current environment, it's a little more playable than Vapor Snag, but that's not saying anything because Vapor Snag's not being played right now. So I'm willing to go non-zero on this, but it's not many. <laughs> I mean, I might. Uh, it's a less. It's less than five for me, and five would be pushing it. I think. Well, I, there's a lot of Snapcaster and Jace Friends Prodigy decks right now. Yeah, though. and that, that's how you get more tempo out of it. I, I really like the card. It's a yeah. fascinating card. It's it's a an elegant design that has a lot of subtlety, subtleties that we've hopefully teased out. Hopefully we. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I like it so much. I, I'm going to go zero just because I I don't have any confidence in, in any of those, but I would love to see it. I hope I hope it appears, and I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I'm going to go with two, just because I don't feel like just taking the over on this one. I do think people will try it. I do think people will have success with it. We could be wrong. We should, we could come back and there's. That would be 15. awesome. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the format is quite that tempo based yet. So <laughs> next up. Bedlam Reveler. Let's revel into mm-hmm. Bedlam. 6RR. Creature, Devil Horror. <laughs> three, it's a 3-4. Bedlam Reveler costs one less to cast for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. It has prowess and, and when Bedlam Rever- Reveler enters the battlefield, discard your hand, then draw oh, three God. cards. <laughs> I, I don't like this card. It's too simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So our normal metrics are a little bit stymied because the mana cost here is variable. But let's compare to something like, say, Dig Through Time, right? Which has this mana cost in blue, uh, 6xx, right, for 8 mana. This doesn't have Delve, but it costs one less for each engine and sorcery. So it's a pseudo-Delve, not fueled by your fetch lands or other cards that you might pitch in there with Jace Rin's Prodigy. But still, almost Delve. It has some advantages over Delve because it, the, the cost reduction is reusable, yeah. right? You could play a Bedlam Reveler on one turn and then play another one again for the same cost reduction. That's kind of cool. Or you could play a Bedlam Reveler and then Delve away those cards and you get dual use out of them of a sort. So let's assume, for the sake of argument, that this mana cost is vintage playable. <laughs> let's assume that you put together your young Pyromancer-like deck and it has Gitaxian Probes and it has Preordains and it has chase friends prodigy and you're you're able to pump three to five i guess instants or sorceries into your yard by turn what three four something like that let's assume that for the sake of argument you can cast this card on turn three ish plus or minus it's a three four with prowess and when it came into play you discarded your hand and drew three more (laughs) cards my instincts tell me that you can modify an existing young pyromancer type shell to make this card imminently castable 
my instincts also tell me that that deck doesn't really want this effect right now, but some other deck with slightly different cards might. Take out a couple of counter spells, put in more proactive stuff, more lightning bolts perhaps, so that you're enjoying discarding your hand and drawing three cards a little bit more. 3-4 prowess is no slouch in terms of a body. I mean, you're going to be attacking with this thing as a 4-5 or a 5-6 even a lot of the time. It's going to compete with Goyf in terms of size reliably. Interesting, Interesting comparison you're making there to Tarma Goyf. Yeah. Well, and Goyf's not playable right now, but Goyf's also not red and it's not doesn't draw you three cards, so <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why. <clears throat> I I feel like you could make a Bedlam Reveler deck work and it could reliably cast Bedlam Reveler and you would reliably get advantage out of it, you know, plus two to three cards, meaning you get stuck with a Force of Will in your hand or something because that deck's still going to play Force of Will. But I'm just not sure that's good enough in an environment filled with Young Pyromancers and Monastery Mentors and Ravagers and Thought Not Seers and Reality Smashers. It's close. 3-4 is close, right? But given that you just discarded your hand and you drew three more cards... A deck like this is going to be less reliably holding cards in hand by definition, I think, yeah. in order to be maximizing this card. And so I think your results are going to be a little less predictable in terms of how you can answer the opponent's creatures. That might sound like an oxymoron. What I'm getting at is that you're not going to be the control deck, I don't think, in most of these matchups. <laughs> And it's hard to be the aggro deck against all these great aggro decks in Vintage. Well, you just put a lot of things on the table. I think this card is is really complicated. Is which your, your, really your first point? Let's let's just let's step back though. Let's go back and and take apart a couple of the elements because or look clo- more closely sure. at a couple of the elements. So first, I'd like to just distinguish between actual delve and what this does. Because, I mean, I think that's obviously a key point, right? I mean, we, we now have a right. lot a lot of experience, years of experience at this point, playing with Delve spells. You know, uh, almost mm-hmm. two years of experience at this point. Um, maybe between a year and a half and two years. And Delve spells, we all underestimated them at first. You know, I think mm-hmm. we correctly guessed how quickly we would be able to, to play the things. We just underestimated how good they would be. Um Right. But this is not Delve, and there's big differences here. I mean, it's non-trivial that you can, for example, sacrifice a Black Lotus, the Delve, or or you yep. can, yeah, That's Fetchlands, nice. uh, among many, many, many other things. So I'm wondering how much of a difference you think that makes. Let's just hold that mm-hmm. question. Second, I'll post two more questions. Second is, I, I think the fact that you have to discard your hand... Me, the question to me is how often will you have less than three cards in hand to be able to make this profitable? And 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 <laughs> and more than that, not just three cards in hand to make it profitable, but when will you want to? When would you want to exchange? This is a subtler point. When do you, would you want to exchange mm-hmm. the cards that you have in hand that maybe you've accumulated over the series of turns for cards on the top of your library? Like it's conceivable that you would have like force a blue spell and something else, or like force in a blue spell where like you would actually get yeah. a card out of this, but you don't want to lose the two cards in your hand. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So let me just throw those two out, those those three questions out, and just get your feedback on those, and then we can go further. Well, it all overlaps. So, uh, I agree with your assessments. <clears throat> I believe that you can make a deck have a little more celerity in terms of putting cards in its discard pile if you want, over the way current Pyromancer so, decks so are structured. So more probe or something like that. M- more probe, 
a, a little more cantrip, and also what ca- what cantrip? You know, some what old cantrip? Like sleight of hand. I was just about to say, um, no, thought scour. Ah, uh, interesting. We've talked yeah. about thought scour in the vintage context, some bug decks in the past, as a way to feed delve in the bug decks, and also maximize your Tassiger casting and your Snapcaster synergy. I pretty, I firmly believe that thought scour would be a feature of a Bedlam Reveler deck. <laughs> Um, it doesn't. It's not much of a stretch, no, no, no. right? I mean, no, it's, it's not a great card, but it, it fits its purpose. Yeah. So I believe you're totally right about the fact that you're not getting all the delve benefits from Lotus and Fetchlands in, in particular, and any killed creatures that you have go to the graveyard, and other things that you would discard to Jace Vrin's Prodigy, right? Excessive copies of Jace Vrin's Prodigy is a good example. So Bedlam Reveler is not just a two mana creature in the way that Dig Through Time is just a two mana spell by the time you cast it. There would be several contexts where you're looking at your hand on turn three and Bedlam Reveler still costs four. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and that, that's a major concern. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, then there's the next thing, and it all goes to how you construct this deck and what this deck's role is. And I was alluding to earlier, I don't think you can, I don't think you can have many more control elements in such a deck other than Force of Wills and then Burn. Right? Yes. You're not going to want this deck to have a bunch of counter spells in it. Force of Wills, yeah. maybe some missteps, um, but you're not going to be sitting back and playing the control role either way. I think it would be part of the way that such a deck played that you would look at Bedlam Revel- a hand of Force, Misstep, and Bedlam Reveler, and you would say, you'd have to do the calculus of, okay, do I play this Reveler now, or do I hold this Force for their turn? You know, which is more valuable to me right now? And hopefully you would know the answer to that after having constructed and played the deck, but that's going to be a tricky situation. It's probably it's not, not the same answer every time. Precision. Yeah, it's, it's, it's dissynergy. So there's some inherent dissynergy. But if you build the deck right, I mean, there's only going to be four Force of Wills in it, in theory. <laughs> so you could design around that. But there's also an inherent tension, I believe, in the number of creatures in such a deck. Because this deck has synergy with Delver, Young Pyromancer, Jace Friend's Prodigy, Snapcaster Mage. You can't put all those creatures in this deck. In fact, because of the way the Bedlam Reveler works, you probably won't. You don't want any more than maybe ten or twelve creatures in this deck at most. Awkward. And if you're trying yeah, to, play, to play a four, tempo game, yeah, you probably yeah, and you probably can't play four. You probably can't even support four Bedlam Revelers. That's my guess. But the the funny thing about them is they're not bad in multiples. Just like Jace Friend's Prodigy isn't bad in multiples because one of them handles all the other copies. I mean, within reason. So oh, I take that back. They're bad in multiples in the sense that you, you just can't cast two of them if they're in your hand. You cast one and the other one goes away. But if you drew another one off of the first one, it's going to be that much cheaper because you've drawn other spells to cast or you discarded other spells. So they're going to get better as the game goes along, in a sense. They're going to become easier to cast. You, I could see a scenario where you're casting Bedlam Revelers on consecutive turns. Turns four, five, six Bedlam Revelers because you keep drawing into them off of the ones you're, pl- you're playing. I I don't think this is a recipe for a very good vintage yeah. deck. Vintage decks, the the aggro control decks, uh, the the elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned until now is Gush. Gush and Bedlam Reveler are not well, we, good together. We, That's just synergy. We have mentioned in the podcast, but certainly not in this context. I completely agree. With, completely <laughs> agree with you. I think yeah. you know you're going to be losing your lands. You're going to be. It's it's really yeah. awkward. Yeah. It's just bad. Yeah, you're you're giving up half or more of the advantages of Gush to to discard your hand right after playing it. You're just not maximizing it at all. So can you build a young Pyromancer slash Delver deck without Gush? Sure you can. People in Legacy are doing it every day. But is that good enough advantage? It probably won't be. A Bedlam Reveler is no... I mean, 
Okay, face value, all things being equal. If you empty your hand and the last spell you play is Bedlam Reveler, yes, you are drawing more literal cards than Gush does. Okay, so that is true. But but several things conflict there. One, that situation is probably going to be more difficult to achieve than you think, <laughs> having just Bedlam Reveler as the last card in your hand and getting it to work. Two, it's harder to cast. It's harder to get onto the stack and harder to resolve just because of the nature of Gush being free, quote-unquote. And also, I mean... When all is said and done, would you rather have Bedlam Revelers in your deck, or would you rather be a Gush deck? <laughs> Which might sound like a tautology, but I, I think time has proven that the Gush deck is a major contender in Vintage for years and probably years to come. I, I don't feel like this creature, even though it has the potential to draw three cards, is, is quite as consistent. Yeah, I'm going good. a big fat zero on this one. I, I, after everything that I've just said, I don't actually think this is a zero. I think some people, some creative people, are going to come at this the way they came at uh, Prophetic Flame Speaker. Remember, there was I don't know one or two of those, um, and uh, you know Josh Prochusek worked it into his uh, his 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 red. What was that deck called? Simeon's oh, yeah. Mob. <laughs> his metagame deck called Simeon's Mob. That was a good title. But uh, point is, I think there's a place. Let, let's put it another way. I have lost in in sanctioned vintage to legacy delver <laughs> okay and i'm not i'm not saying that as a sob story it was because just because his cards were all lined up very well with things i was playing that day and you know he had a, a good draw feature to turn one delver and good disruption good tempo plays i think it's possible to construct a deck that eschews gush has a lot of the same mechanics but gets its card advantage from this creature and a few other things and uh, some creative deck builders might make it work because it could be backbreaking you play turn one um i probe you and then therapy you right super disruptive turn two jace friends prodigy turn three preordain activate jace maybe another spell i don't know what it is turn four play this down maybe with a lightning bolt mixed in to remove one of my creatures in there i mean that's a that's a good competitive draw that would be competitive against a lot of vintage decks. It just can't have a lot of counter spells in it. It's part of the problem. So you're going to have bad some bad matchups. I don't know. I think it's a non-zero. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with one, just because my confidence is not high, but I believe it is could be a competitive card. Let's move on to Eldritch Evolution. One GG sorcery. As an additional cost to cast Eldritch Evolution, sacrifice a creature. Search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less, where X is 2 plus the sacrificed creature's converted mana cost. Put that card onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library and exile Eldritch Evolution. What's up with these formulas? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, by way of diligence, is 1GG a playable vintage cost? I'm having a hard time actually think of a, thinking of a vintage card that's well, played cards, at that cost. The last one I could think of is Spike Well, the, uh, <laughs> more recently than that, if you're going to use Oath Targets, is Eternal, Wit- Eternal Witness. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, Eternal Witness. <clears throat> but three mana for a green spell, you know, double well, green notwithstanding, is certainly a playable yeah, vintage Yeah, I mean, cost. Mana Gorger Hydra is, is certainly... Yeah, City of Solitude. So... Is this effect vintage playable? I think the short answer to that is certainly yes, but not in the way you might think, because the closest analog to a vintage playable card like this is Green Sun Zenith. 
and it hasn't been played this it hasn't made top eight in any event this year that I know of. There are no results on TC decks. They go back in twenty fifteen. In twenty fifteen there were a hands there was kind of a rash of of blue green or blue green white uh, aggro control decks with some toolboxes that had green sun zenith. Those decks would have loved oh, yeah. this card. Yeah. Uh, but there also isn't any natural order well, in Vintage, just so anyone That's knows. true. Green Sun Zenith in either Legacy or Vintage, for one mana you can get Dryad Arbor. For two mana you get like Noble Hierarch. Yeah. Three mana you get Tarmogoy. Yeah. And, and you can go up from there and you can get all kinds of other creatures like Kasali Pride Mage or whatever. Trigon. Trigon. Um, but this card, this card has more flexibility, but is also narrower. So you can get you can get <laughs> more expensive cards for less mana, but you also have to sacrifice yep. a creature. So how do we balance those yeah. against each other? Well, the toolbox element means that the toolbox goes to a higher casting cost faster, which, in my opinion, equates to power pretty well. You can go straight from Noble Hierarch to Trigon Predator with this on turn two. Yeah. That's a that's a pretty reasonable sure. play, right? If if Noble Hierarch, or I'm sorry, if Trigon was a game winning right. play in your matchup against Workshops or Oath, perhaps. And also, this is not limited to green, the way green, sun, zenith, and natural order are. So we could be sacrificing a zero-mana creature. We could be sacrificing a Dryad Arbor to get Thalia in the oh, play. Oh, good point. Get Gadok Teague good if point. you want. Yeah. Get Spirit of the Lab or, or any other of those disruptive bears. Um, so we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about disruptive bears lately in both this show and the, several of the past shows. I think that you could make a good case that because it's not limited by color and because it goes so easily from zero to two and from one to three, that this could be a pretty reliable way to make a toolbox bear deck. And it wouldn't have to have very much in the way of toolbox in it. You could make a pretty reliable humans deck, for example, that just had a couple of toolbox creatures in these. If you were playing... And you could just turn your noble hierarchs into all any bear you wanted on yeah, turn two so or three. Yeah, so let's say you're playing against like a mentor deck or a Grixis pyromancer deck, and you resolve this on turn two with turn one noble hierarch. What do you get? Mm-hmm. Well, against mentor, you get sulfur elemental. Good point. <laughs> or against, or you against could, young pyromancer, the answer is a little get trickier, but there's still you could get Mag- you could get Magus yeah. of the Moon. <sighs> Magus of the Moon would be such a beating in so many matchups. Uh, let's not forget this facilitates certain creature based combos like Painter. Oh, nice, um, nice. Not not that I think it's not that I think you want to be adding a lot of creatures to your Painter deck, but it's something to consider. Um, so I think you, the the question you just asked is perfect, right? Being able to have one uh, sulfur elemental in your deck and reliably get it in your otherwise green-based or white-based aggro deck is great. That's great. Being able to protect this with, with Thalia and with some possibly some other disruption, like uh, what am I thinking of that disrupts their hand? Um, well, you, I thought mean, not uh, here. Duress spells. And thought, thought, uh, thought not here. That's what I was thinking of, yes. So you could you could shoehorn this into a white green Eldrazi deck of sorts. That'd be tricky because of this mana, but I'm sure clever deck builders could make it work. <clears throat> and so uh, sacrificing a sacrificing a, a three cost creature could get you to five if you wanted to sacrifice a, uh, a displacer, for example. There's a lot of options here, and I think you can build a pretty effective toolbox with not very many creatures in Vintage. That's that's the reason I find it so attractive. I think. Well, tutors are always powerful. And this is a tutor. This, this is, is a tinker. tinker tutor. Yeah, I mean it's it's. Uh, yeah. And natural order can only get green creatures, so this is. And it, and you can only sacrifice green creatures to natural order yeah. too. So this is. That's not that hard because it's easy to play green creatures early, but still, this is even more flexible than that. 
So you can get that sulfur elemental. Well, you well can one get... of the key the key values of Tinker is that you can trade a zero cost for like an eleven cost. So it's not quite Tinker. Right. It's a but it it's it's within a range. Uh, I think it's still <laughs> a tutor. True. It's still a tutor. You can't go get I mean, Tinker. Uh, you can't go get Progenitus unless you sacrifice something that costs. Tinker is mana <laughs> advantage. This is not mana advantage. You're paying three and you can only get plus two. So it's up yeah. to yes. Uh, but I, uh, but I would challenge what you said in one color. aspect, and yeah. that is you can get color, and also you can get a creature that's more expensive than what you have in terms of mana. Right? You can sacrifice a three cr- drop creature to get an ingot chewer Fair against enough. shops when you wouldn't five ever mana. have five mana. Yeah, because you can scenarios. diffuse yeah. the mana over cross turns. You have exactly. pay increments. Yeah, and this is another card. So this, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that all those creatures that work well with Emerge work very well here because any artificial increase in a creature's mana cost that you can get translates directly into what you can get with Eldritch Evolution. So uh, Sky Shroud Cutter, which costs four, uh, Mirror Enforcer, which costs seven, Allosaurus Rider, which costs seven. These kind of things allow you to Eldritch Evolution for huge things. Um not that I think that's a recipe for success, but it's worth pointing out here. There aren't very many vintage creatures that are played because you cheat them in and they have high casting costs. <laughs> that's the realm of Oath, but those creatures are played to, to win the game, not to just have well, high I, casting costs. I think, yeah, I think we're coming back to this is going to appear. I mean, the strongest place for this is where you have a human's deck that's composed of silver bullets and you just get the one that's right for the moment. Like you're playing against shops and you get Trigon. Yeah. You have turn one Noble Hierarch, turn two you get Trigon. Or you're playing against, uh, you know, like we said, like maybe let's say Eldrazi and you get turn two Magus of the Moon. Magus of the Moon devastating yeah. because they need colorless. They all become mountains so they can't cast any Eldrazi, you know? Uh, yeah. You're, you're pl- yeah, and you can you can get all other silver bullets that are good against like Oath in the priest. form of Containment yeah, Priest. You're and against, or, 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 yeah, you're playing against countless, yeah. countless. So if you're playing a silver bullet yeah. deck, this is nuts. <laughs> you're to your toolbox yeah. point. Um, the so, so humans is certainly a possibility. I think Eldrazi is less likely because the double green. But anything that can play, you know, that's another big reason to play <laughs> to play Noble Hierarch. Of course, the big drawback is that this becomes counterable. The creatures themselves with Cavern aren't. This opens <laughs> yeah. up Flusterstorm, etc. True, true. But you can design your deck to minimize that. Um, I think its application with Eldrazi should be restated in the form of... One of the things the Eldrazi deck does is uh, cheat on mana of a sort. Because you can frequently tap two lands to play a Thought Not Seer. Or three lands to play a Reality Smasher, yep. right? It wouldn't be out of the question in my eyes to play this in an Eldrazi deck where you resolve Thought Not Seer and then you sack that Thought Not Seer to go get Endbringer. Yeah, they're going to get a card out of it, though. Yeah, but you've already the chosen, theoretically, the best card in their hand, and an Endbringer is a lot harder to deal with than a Thought Not Seer once it's in play. I mean, it's a much big, it's a pretty big yeah. upgrade. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I know that one GG is going to be hard to work in the current way that Eldrazi decks work, so you could that's just, going to you, require retooling the deck yeah, dramatically. Or you could chain Thought Not Seers, too. Oh, you know, that's a good point. You can just take put one into another if you feel like that they've got, a, you know that they've got another card you really want to take out of their hand. That's a good point. So there's some toolbox in a sense without even changing based on uh, comes into play effects. 
it, it's you know it's funny. I just realized how would you get multiple green mana in a creature based deck? Well, it's obvious those those uh, Eldrazi decks aren't playing Cradle. Ah. <laughs> you could put yeah. Gaia's Cradle into into a deck that has twenty creatures in it, and it would reliably cast the yeah, spell. Yeah, Cradle is a bit expensive right now, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true that it is. <clears throat> I think this card is definitely playable. I think that there's a reason why Green Sun Zenith has been on the outs, and part of it is because uh, white has been so yeah, good. Yeah, you're right. And also the value of some of the green cards that were got has declined. I mean, Kasali Trigon. And, and Trigon in particular are, are not yeah. what they once were. Trigon's partly mm-hmm. because of Hangerback, certainly not entirely, but largely. Yeah. And, and certainly also the, the rise of Dak. Um, yep. but, but also, as you say, like the hate bears has moved away from white green to more white red is the, is the main <clears throat> dyad, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think there are, I think there are myriad options for this card. There's no obvious home for it right now. Humans. All the decks we've we just, just described yeah. would be, uh, yeah, but it, you're talking about changing that humans deck by 10 to 12 cards. Well, you could cut Mantis end. Rider and start playing this. I mean, the, you, it already has noble yeah. hierarch, uh, you know, so you've got the you've got enough sources of green. Every one of those lands is rainbow lands, except for cavern for this and wastelands. Yeah, so maybe ten cards is overstating yeah, it. I, maybe you cut, maybe you turn Rantis Riders into these, and then you cut another three to four creatures for some toolbox. Uh, you the Quasali Pride Mages, for example, are what that are the toolbox effectively of that deck, right? So you could turn those into some more specialized things. Maybe yeah, that, a, a Kataki none of those decks actually run, and a, none of those a decks Trigon. None of the humans decks from the Bizarre Moxen run Kasali, oh, right? No, the five-color one did have Kasali Prime Bizarre, Engine. The first place, the Bizarre yeah, Moxen? Did. Yeah, the first place one did. But the point is is that those decks can run a myriad of creatures. I mean, it's it, it's not you don't, it's not especially yeah, important starting from any one You don't list, need to but, sacrifice a green creature to this. Yeah. Precisely. It can be anything. So you could yeah. sacrifice, I don't know, like a super... But most of the early creatures would be green. You don't want to sack Thalia to this. Well, if you have a second um, Thalia, but, you might. Oh, yeah, that's true. If you've got the mana to make that play, sure. It's an expensive play. That play costs six mana. But whatever. You, you're right. Um, so I think I think it's feasible in that sense. That Humans deck has not really been blazing a trail in Vintage. Well, <laughs> Even though it did get first at the Bazaar, it's uh, not become a real staple. I, but it's, we're, I, we, it's pretty clear that it's right on the edge. Between that and Eldrazi, we have playable decks that would want this effect. Yeah, I mean, you could even get, get Octique, like we were saying, it's Grixis. Be nuts. Sure, sure. Is there an effect that can help, be, uh, sulfur Metal, besides Sulfur Metal, deal with Mentor? Well, Displacer? Dis- no, Displacer is not going to do it. Well, it, Displacer deals with Monks, but yeah. it's slow. This could help you build the Displacer-Containment Priest combo. Uh, there's also some niche ways that can help prevent them from attacking. Oh, jeez, I can't think of my, any great my examples is, other than Silent, silent Arbiter. And my guess is if stuff. you're going to run this card, you probably... There's a chance you may have to pair back Cavern and just run, you know, like, let's say, Gemstone instead. Uh, and and you, you still, yeah. you're definitely going to run Noble Hierarch, though. Or more yeah, Noble Hierarch. There's not, like... Yeah, there's Ultra no limit Noble. to Noble Hierarchs in the vintage format. I mean, you could... Right. But that five color humans deck was eighty percent. Non land land cards are eighty percent creatures. So again, you could support Gaia's Cradle too. I think I think creative I, deck builders can yeah, make the mana cost work. I don't work. think I don't think Cradle's going to cut it. Just having tested a lot with humans, if you're running, let's say you know Dark Confidant, Dahlia, Scab Clan Berserker, Mag, 
all that stuff, you're going to need all Rainbow Lands and Wasteland effects. But, but... Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. But, okay, let's let's talk quantity then, because this is super hard to well, evaluate. Well, if you're going to go the route I just said, so let's say we're, we're not doing humans anymore, we're going to play without caverns, but we are going to play mm-hmm. like all these five-color lands, and we're going to play all these cards with a bunch of singletons, <laughs> you're going to have to run probably three or four of these things, probably four. Oh yeah, definitely. I agree. And you might be incentivized to run Green Sun Zenith also, if you, if for example, you want to get the turn one, uh, the turn one Dryad Arbor, for example, because this plus a Dryad Arbor, this the Green Sun for Dryad Arbor on turn one means this becomes Thalia on That's turn true. two. That's the upstairs Thalia you reliability. Locks. No, you don't need it. You just need two lands because you play a land and Green Suns for the the Dryad, and then next oh, turn you right. play a second land, right, and you've got right. three mana. You're sacrificing your true, third land. True. Yeah, that's just a two-mana yeah. play. You don't even need two sources of green because the first one gets a green mana for you. <laughs> you just need a fetch land and a mox and a green sun zenith and this, and you've got turn two Thalia. And you haven't lost any more card advantage than you would from sacking any other creature because a green sun is effectively like a noble hierarch in that situation. <clears throat> anyway, that's speculation. Green suns, I think, green suns, I think, is synergistic with the deck that we're talking about, although it's not required. Well, I'm going to... I'm not confident that this deck... Well, two things. I'm not confident that Humans is is a large player in the metagame currently. It's hard to tease out how many Humans decks are out there, though, because all of their component parts are parts of other decks. Like the the Scab Clan Berserker, for example, is that you might say, well, that's a defining feature of that deck, except it's not because people have started to put Scab Clan into all sorts of other decks. (laughs) Like the Thing in the Ice deck we mentioned earlier. That's the first example of a Scab Clan deck. But the Mantis Rider, Mayor of Averbrook, I think maybe Mayor is probably the better representative. That deck did make top eight at the Eternal Extravaganza 4 in the hands of uh, Sam Castrucci. Yep. And it has made a couple of other uh, small tournament appearances lately since its Bizarre of Moxon appearance. It looks like it's put up one, two, three, four top eights effectively since the Bizarre of Moxon. So that might be a good measure of how much... And it's, it's not as though everyone who plays that deck is immediately just going to adopt an Eldritch Evolution deck. But I think that's the that's probably the, a good measure of the ceiling, <laughs> if you will. And it's possible that some white-based Eldrazi players would also go in this direction as well for the reasons we stated. But I have to believe that would be the minority of such players. Which isn't saying much, though, because the Eldrazi decks are quite popular right now. So I feel like this is still one of those less than five cards. <laughs> I keep saying that about so many of these cards, but... A couple of people could adopt this. I don't think it's going to be a major player because I don't think mid-range decks can be very dominant in a format like this. Hmm. So I would say this is a one or a two of at most. I'm, I bet it'll be attractive well, to a few people. put your money where your mouth is put and give me <laughs> Yeah. I'll, I'll put a two down. No, no, I'll take that back. I'm going to put a one down. I, I just think zero? it depends on how many humans decks show up. I mean, so here's the thing. I, I think Cavern of Souls is one of the best cards in the human deck, and I just don't know how you can fit this and Cavern together. That's my biggest concern. Yeah. Uh, I think it's reasonable, very reasonable. I mean, just concern. the role. But keep in mind that the, every hand that draws a Cavern can still just cast this when it yeah, gets yeah. three lands. Well, that's true. Right? Uh, I mean, you can also go, you know, if you have Cavern in turn one, Noble Hierarch, then you can still play this on turn two. And if you have Simeon's uh, Elvish Spirit Guide in your deck, it also makes it a little bit easier. Um, yeah. And we've been t- we've been talking about very aggressive lines with this, but this is perfectly fine on the turns three, four, five kind of play. You can treat it as removal in certain contexts. Because the the sulfur elemental play against mentor is it's very effective removal in that kind of context. 
Sulfur Elemental and Thalia are not good friends, but I think that's a small price to play to pay. You would sacrifice your Thalia to get Sulfur Elemental to get rid of all their monks. I think you'd make that trade if you're a humans player. I, I just I think your concern about Cavern is an important consideration, but not a deal breaker. Those decks already yeah, have pretty I mean, good mana. I, I, I think I entered this conversation as a skeptic, and I've persuaded myself <laughs> this card is playable. I, <laughs> I, I think the toolbox potential is really powerful. Um, I'm going to go... It, it rewards good deck building and good metagame understanding. Can you tell also. me how many humans decks have populated the last top whatever? The last, the last period? Well, yeah, that, that's what I said a minute ago. It looks like there have been four of them since the winning of the Bazaar of Moxon. Well, that wasn't that long ago. That was like a month and a half ago, right? Yeah, that's so what that's I mean. A, so that's an average of eight. So five, basically. That's about six or seven yeah. per quarter. I'm going to go with yeah. you. I'm going to say one. Okay. Yeah, so we're talking about a subset of people who would play that deck, switching it to one of these. And that makes sense to me. This goes. This all goes back to something we've said on all of our past few set reviews, which is we're not so much predicting playability anymore as predicting people's behavior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what and yeah, what if people are going to be attracted. If this to is the first time you're listening to this, our predictions are based on what actually appears in top eight deck lists, <laughs> which is paper events according to TC yeah. decks. Yeah. Any, yeah, we don't predict online yet. We might move to it at some future point. But anyway, moving on. Spell Queller. Love that title. One WU creature spirit. It's a 2 3. Flash, flying. When Spell Queller enters the battlefield, exile target spell with converted mana cost 4 or less. When Spell Queller leaves the battlefield, the exiled card's owner may cast that card without paying its mana cost. This again, these cards are just so vanilla. They're <laughs> but, just so but simple. They're so far yeah. from it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are not afraid of complexity in this set. Good grief. <clears throat> this card is a spirit, I'd like to point out. So it could go in aforementioned spirit tribal deck that we were theorizing about earlier. I, I would also like to just toss out there that uh, this de- this card seems to have a lot in common with what Josh Pachusek's latest Blue Angels list is trying to do. I thought you might say do. something like that. <laughs> it's a it's a blue creature with flash and flying, and it counters and, a spell. And it's, I mean, a, come it's on. a spirit. <laughs> and it's a spirit. Oh, geez, it's all over the place. Um, it could be that this card is actually one of those things that makes the the Mausoleum Wanderer I... more attractive to people. Uh, we're just going to have to see. But uh, all right, let's be diligent. This mana cost is vintage playable, but the only card I can think of offhand is Reflector Mage which, in the Humans yeah, deck, that's, that's right? In there. Yep. Which is good. And also, in a very rare case, uh, Detention Sphere. But Reflector Mage is good enough. In fact, Reflector Mage is, is the same body as this, in fact. So that's a good thing. Flash and Flying are both highly relevant vintage mechanics, sure. right? So, well, let's get to the meat. When Spell Queller enters the battlefield, exile target spell with converted mana cost four or less. We've talked about the critical junctures of mana cost in a number of contexts over the years. (laughs) Commonly about Lodestone Golem at four mana. But let's just point out a few of the things that this misses in the metagame. It misses Force of Will, which is probably the most numerous example. It misses... All of the top-end threats from Workshops and Eldrazi. So your Triskelion, your Reality Smasher, your World Breaker or Endbringer, a Worm Coil Engine, etc. It misses the biggest threats from the blue decks, like your Tezzerets, your 
Havison, <laughs> your Consecrated Sphinx, perhaps. It misses the top end cards from the Dark Petition Storm, so it misses Dark Petition. It misses Mind's Desire and, and Bargain. Anything else I'm forgetting, Steve? No, I think you know, it was pretty comprehensive. <laughs> I mean, it, it missed, yeah. It, so there, there aren't. In most archetypes, there's one big spell that it's missing. Right. In most archetypes. Some decks, there's not. Like in Oath, it's only hitting, it's only missing Force of Will. In Dredge, I think it hits everything because it hits Dread Return, hits Unmask. It, it, so if Dredge has Force of Will, it misses that as well. But this is, so this is good at hitting vintage playable cards. <laughs> And it exiles them. So it has all those benefits that we talked about with Unsubstantiate vis-a-vis Cavern of Souls. Now, you would not play this card in Oath for obvious reasons. So that's an application you're missing. But most of the blue-based control decks that have white that are not Oath would really enjoy to be able to counter spells in this way. I'm not saying they would play it. I'm just saying they would like this effect. And a 2-3 flash flying body is pretty relevant in Vintage right now. It trades with some important creatures like Thalia and Dark Confidant and Delver and Young Pyromancer. It doesn't trade with all those, but it right. kills those. It trades with a couple of them. It trades with Insectile Aberration. It trades with Baleful Strix. But having flash means it's also good at, at headhunting on um, uh, Planeswalkers. And so it won't take down a Jace the Mind Sculptor by itself. It would take down a Jace that bounced a creature, and it would take down a Dak that stole an artifact, although the odds of Dak stealing an artifact against a Spell Queller deck are <laughs> reduced. And it would take down a, a Jace Vryn's Prodigy, or Telepath Unbound that flashed back a spell. Although spells that, spells that are ex, uh, cast by flashback are exiled regardless. That's a good point. So if you were to do this on a Dread Return, it would be gone permanently, or same with Cobble Therapy or Ancient Grudge. Deep Analysis. Or anything. Yeah, or Jace Friends Prodigy. Jace Friends Prodigy. Yep. Uh, wait a second, wait a second. I need to double-check the way Jace is worded. <laughs> I could I could never get these straight. If that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead, is what Jace Telepath Unbound says. So It doesn't actually spell no flashback like Snapcaster. Yeah. No, it doesn't. So they, they would actually yeah. get the spell back from the <laughs> on a Jace. That's, <laughs> that's important to know. <laughs> but on a Snapcaster, they right. wouldn't get it back. Quirky. Yeah. This card is really powerful. I mean, we just talked about the scope of cards. Clearly, the limitation on it is timing. Uh, you know. Yeah, but that's not. No, it's much true of, of every counter spell. It's, right? it's true of every it's, counter spell in the format. So. Okay, I got you. Yes. In that so sense, you would have yes. to have this. This isn't. This you have to have instant. this. You have to have this mana up. <laughs> and if you're. Yep. Yeah. So you can't yeah. just like ramp into it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So any deck that's Josh's Blue Angels deck isn't a great example of that, right? That deck is designed to be in a situation where its mana is available for for effects like this. Right. Yeah. So it's not synergistic with the baseline Pyromancer or even most many Mentor kind of plays, right? This is not because you're not going to want to be gushing into this on turn three. Uh, not it's not to say that it's unplayable in that kind of deck, but it's that's what you're referring to is that from a timing consideration, this is not going to be as good at protecting your own spells on your turn, for example. Even though it's possible, it's just not as good at that. Yeah, I, I can't escape the feeling that uh, this card is just nuts with Cavern of Souls. <laughs> you mean against well, it? Well, well, I know, be, no, because then this becomes an uncounterable card with Cavern. So then you can counter, you can exile any card you want that your opponent might cast. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, it's it's worth reminding you though that as soon as this leaves play, yeah. says when Spellclaw leaves the battlefield, they can cast sure. it without playing sure. its mana cost. So this this card gets countered a, of a sort by Swords to Plowshares and it's a tempo bolt. play. Yeah, not a permanent solution. I mean, right. it's like Relic Water in that regard. Yes, good good comparison. Uh, but still, having Cavern on Spirit and casting this with it is a potent play. That's going to dodge a lot of things. A and lot. We of could the play time. it with the card that we reviewed earlier in this set review. <laughs> yeah, the Mausoleum Wanderer. Yep. I don't think that the synergy between those two cards is the primary power of this one. I think this card could go in plenty of non-spirit tribal decks and be just fine. I think that we've had a history of blue-white based control decks of many different sorts over the past several years, and they've cropped up in major tournaments. There was a moat-based deck in Champs last year, and this card is just excellent in those kind of decks. I mean, it does everything that, uh, that those kind of decks want. It's a threat. It has flash. It has flying, so it synergizes with moat, and it handles difficult cards. It handles a, a Thalia or a, a Eldrazi or, or cast off a cavern, or Jace. Yeah, it's. I mean, the four or less is a limitation, but in vintage, it's not nope. much of one. It's, it's an, almost the entire it format. Is, the only exception is. It's, yeah, it's, it's got to be yeah, ninety plus percent of the format. Is, is, is bargain, <laughs> desire, and a handful of uh, artifact creatures and Eldrazi. And like one, and, and, yeah, one will. <laughs> and, and a couple blue cards besides, and planeswalk. And Tezzeret's yeah. pretty rare. Yeah, in definitely, Tezzeret Agent of Bola sees more play than Tezzeret. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like Landstill pilots and Blue Angel type pilots and moat based control deck pilots are really going to be attracted to this. I think other decks though could be attracted to this, and I don't want to say humans exactly, but even decks yeah, like humans. This, easily. this this is a yeah. fine play. Like, well, I mean, uh, tempo-based decks have used deck cards like Vendillion yeah, Click, I mean, for example, in the past. No. Success. This is a so very think similar about to Click. Phyrexian Revoker, right? Phyrexian Revoker turns off Jace the Mind Sculptor as long as it's in play. As long mm-hmm. as it's destroyed, then the Jace comes back online. But you know, the point right. is that the mere fact of turning it off slows down their capacity to find the answer so it, this is the same right. thing right so, right well i think this card's very playable yeah. i think it could be played across a myriad of archetypes uh, i'm impressed with its power it could be played it, it well it, it probably could, would be played in vendillion click like numbers yeah. that isn't from a deck construction standpoint so comparing it to click it's a great comparison. There are numerous yeah. examples of, but its click is almost always a one or a two of. You very rarely see click more than two. In fact, I can't I think, think it of showed a deck up as click a more three than two. of and like one or two decks ever. Maybe like Blue Angels, like maybe. That. Yeah. Maybe. But anyway, it but it doesn't matter. This spell queller fills a very similar role, and Vendillion click is a mainstay of the format. Vendillion's well, put up. It looks I don't like agree. I'm eyeballing here, but it looks like. 30 appearances really? this year. Click was a card that I thought had yeah. almost disappeared. I mean, I don't see it in any of the MTGO oh. data. It's gone. It used to be ubiquitous like two years ago, but it's go- it's disappeared. Well, I will grant you that most of those appearances are earlier in the year. Most of them are, bef- are before... They're in Q1. It looks like since... April 1st, there have been 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 9 That's appearances That's a lot more than April I would have 1st. expected. I think if you go to the end, I could be completely wrong, but my recollection... Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, the, 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 we know that click, the paper metagame is, is different. Click is a card that so. was really popular in 2014. I thought it mostly disappeared last year. But in any case, one of the reasons one of the reasons Either. that Click was bounded as a 2 or 3 of is because it's a legend. This sure. this is not. That's a good reason. So you can play... The, and this actually <laughs> will reinforce each other. So I, 
mean, uh, and, and also click this, this card is is card advantageous. At least as yeah. long as it's in play, in a it's way that click is not. Click is just it's cycling. You know, it's right. disruptive, but when used against your opponent. But so the point is, click was used as a finisher that was moderately disruptive. Right. This card can replace multiple counter spells in a deck and be a, a reliable answer and a threat. I mean, this you could play this as a three or four of, and you wouldn't you wouldn't lose anything except for the opportunity cost. Yeah. I think that's exciting. Me too. I could see a moat-based control deck that had three or four of these easily, and it's and it's very synergistic with Landstill, right? Yeah. This card does everything Landstill wants to do, in well, terms of being an answer that also has flash and as a creature, and you can play it and get them then with standstill. Yeah, you can play it before or after yeah. a standstill, so to speak, <laughs> not into your right. standstill, of course. But the point is, it's good to draw before or after a standstill, which is all the it, yeah. you know, landstill. And, and the exile like effect is incredibly disruptive in decks that often need to use recursion. So, like, it can really, like, oh, yeah. Good point. I mean, like, it, it'll stymie effects with, like, Yogwill or things like that. So. Well, and, and it has virtual card advantage against Jace Friend's Prodigy and exactly. Snapcaster. If you get someone's ancestral with yeah. this, they don't get to just <laughs> buy it back. Right. Hmm. Wow. That's exciting. So do, a specific question. Do you think this is playable in Mentor? Well, I, I think the problem with... Oh, geez. I, I think one of the issues with a card like this is the ubiquitous n- nature of creature removal right now. We're kind of at a, at a high sure. right now because, because oh, yeah. of the... Uh, oh, yeah. Eldrazi yeah, really brought it yeah, up. Yeah, I was going to say that. Um, so... So one question is, and also let's just be clear: the the exile effect is is awesome. It means you can deal with cards like abrupt decay again, right? All the uncounterable fun stuff. Um, right. I uh, it, would it be playable in mentor? It doesn't trigger the mentor. It requires <laughs> you to keep up three mana, which is not going to be easy, even in like an Esper mentor where you have max mana. Ah. <sighs> Ah, I don't I know. think it's it's it functions more like click would in mentor. Yeah. I think it's a one of maybe in mentor as an additional threat that's flexible, but it's not synergistic with yeah, that. Yeah, I don't game think this plan. would be played in the mentor deck. I think this is something for something different. I mean, within reason, people have played Dragon Lord Dramaka in mentor. Yeah, but that's I mean, di- <laughs> it's I consider that to be different, but yeah. I mean, and they've always <laughs> and they've always role, played it also right. in it, Dragon Lord Dramaka has only showed up in Sylvan Mentor where you have Sylvan Library too. So the spirit link and all right. that matters. Yeah, true. But my point though is that if you can play a five or a six cost dragon lord, oh, it's not in the mentor, it's not the mana cost. You, yeah, you can, it's not the mana cost. Well, I think I think it is oh, though. Yeah. I think it is because this this card is it's sharing roles with your counter spells and your finishers, and in that capacity, you can't play very many. You can't play many, if any, counter spells in mentor that true. cost this much. You can't fit a three mana counter spell in mentor with reliability. There's just, it just that yeah. Just I guess what I was me. saying is that you could. There's a whole range of spell casting costs you can run, but the reason this card probably mm-hmm. doesn't make the cut is not solely because of its mana cost. Its mana cost is certainly yeah. playable. I mean, it costs almost the same as Mentor. But its functionality is, I think, at that cost is the problem. Okay. I think, yeah, I think we are saying the same thing in a couple of different ways. I agree with you. I don't think this is a Mentor card beyond maybe a one-of. Still playable, but 
not ideal for that deck, but it's much better in the harder control decks. It's much better in most control decks, Blue Angels, Well, you played a mentor deck that has Cavern of Souls, and this has been an interesting card in something like that, because if you're playing, like, Mystic Remora, then this is a kind of interesting card to play, where, you know, you... I don't know, it just seems like you might get some nice timing effects. Yeah, such a thing is certainly possible. I, I see your point. Challenging to cast this while maintaining a Remora, because at the very least that's a four mana play. But well, you do it with Mentor, so certainly. You do it with Mentor, but it's frequently facilitated by Gush on your turn. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, you're frequently doing it aggressively. Turn one Remora, right. turn As three opposed, Mentor. As opposed to timing this on your opponent's turn, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's my reservation. <laughs> I don't think this goes into a Gush deck. I think this. I think this is playable. No, I, I think, think it's think definitely so. playable. I just think it's more of yeah. more of like a uh, a blue white control deck. Well, let me see how much Moat there has been lately, because <laughs> Moat has been kind of on an uptick thanks to more upside. Uh, and Craig Berry. <laughs> <laughs> and Craig Berry, right? <laughs> on- so yeah, it's 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 funny. There was uh, there was a, a a small rash of Moat decks in January and February. One, two, three, four, five of them. Then there was a gulf, and there have been three moat decks since june hmm. <laughs> so it's weird it's fits and starts for moat but there's been three in june and that three doesn't include the one i alluded to in our report card which was joss Pachusek's angels deck so that's a fourth one that i know of that's not on here so moats had, a, had an uptick and i i don't see that going anywhere as long as eldrazi continues to perform well moat will continue to be attractive to people two of those in june were land still and one of them is listed as rogue because it was a this is an all over the place uh enchantment based deck yeah this is a really bizarre rogue deck <clears throat> but the other two are landstill and then josh's angels deck and i think that's the model good home for this spell queller you know one thing i just realized in studying some of these landstill lists is that mentor might want spell queller as an answer to supreme verdict Ooh, i hadn't even which we is talked about tension. we talked about uncounterable but that's a card that had completely was outside my yeah. view my my vision i was it was it skipped yeah. my mind too very well that's just more wow yeah it's more fuel to, so these could well, be a sideboard card it's not maybe? only it's not only just the capacity to answer supreme verdict it's the psychological blowout of doing so <laughs> your, your opponent is all in on point. people play supreme verdict like it is the fin- it then is it's the resolve. finishing play yeah i have a res- yeah. i have a response to that <laughs> okay <laughs> well this more fuel to the fire so you and i are on the same page on this card it's just a matter of how much this feels like going in multiple archetypes but they are low percentage archetypes Landstill, blue-white control. Mentor is not low percentage, but this is going to be not in most Mentor decks. I think you're right. Still, even if it's in 5% or less of Mentor decks, that's a lot of appearances because Mentor is so huge right now. My guess is this could show up this could show up five to fifteen times. Yeah, you might be right. This isn't it's it's not Snapcaster level, but it's I'm gonna I'm should I go first? Would you like me to go first? I'm gonna go three. Please. It's pretty conservative, I I think. I feel like I'm going to take the over. I'm going to take five. I think more people are going to be attracted will, to this. I think it has a lot of things going on. We have the, the Vintage Championship is not in our next three months, right? Because, yeah. No. Okay. Halloween. Good. A lot of stuff could change between now and then. Spell Queller, very interesting. And and none of none of our conversation just now had anything to do really with Spirit Tribal. 
<laughs> but the more that I think about it, the more I think that Spellcrawler is everywhere that Mausoleum Wanderer wants to be. But I don't feel like because Spellcrawler is playable, I don't think it makes Mausoleum Wanderer <laughs> playable. Yeah, I still I reserve the right to be wrong still, but that's that's how I feel about it. All right, this next one might be the most fun one for me to talk about. Very excited about Tamio Field Researcher. For one Bant, that is one G-W-U, Planeswalker Tamio. She has starting loyalty of four. Plus one, choose up to two target creatures until your next turn when either either of those creatures deals combat damage, you draw a card. Minus two, tap up to two target non-land permanents. They don't untap during their controller's next untap step. And minus seven, the ultimate to end Hmm. all ultimates. Draw three cards. You get an emblem with you may cast non-land cards from your hand without paying their (laughs) mana costs. Boy, in terms of vintage ultimates, I'm a big fan of Ancestral Recall plus Omniscience. (laughs) I mean, if I had to draw up an ultimate, that might be my favorite one. That's pretty busted, but you're never going to... Yeah, you're not going to get there. (laughs) No, but that's that's not where I'm interested in Tamiya. I, I like her because because her plus ability is so complex. It introduces so yeah. much play that I find it totally, utterly fascinating. And her minus ability is very strong. I think it's deceptively strong. Tap two target non-land permanents and they don't untap. She effectively protects herself from two creatures. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, that's really good. But I think I think the whole, most of the conversation has to do with her plus ability because just using her minus twice is not a reason to play her. I don't think that's not as a primary plan. That's not good enough. It's still potent. Don't get me wrong. She synergizes with so many different strategies. Is one of the things I like. She promotes you to play creatures, which is cool because her plus ability gets way better if you've got your own creatures to rely on. Using her plus ability on your opponent's creatures, while it might trigger and draw you one or two cards. I think is overall a recipe for failure because hmm. if you're letting your opponent hit you, you or her with them, you're probably losing that race in the long run. I could, you know, certain scenarios, I'm sure drawing two cards will be a big difference, but I don't like that plan. But if you've got your own creatures, then you're in business because then you get to choose. And this is where a lot of the play comes in. Then you get to choose what your role is, whether or not you're on the offensive. You want to swing yeah, your so creatures how do you into theirs. How, how do you whether think you about wanna, that? Like, how do you decide... Do you think mostly in terms of just like how do I maximize my chances for drawing cards with this? I think <laughs> that's why this card is so great. It's just another one of these really straightforward, easy to evaluate cards. Um, I think the best use of this card is going to be using every part of her. I think the best use of her will threaten her ultimate. Interesting. That's the thing. That's not usually how we use planeswalkers. We always no. You're you're right. And that's mean, just contrary so example, to our practice Jade's... with planeswalkers. I'm not saying you're wrong, but you're you're, you're to- I totally agree, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to point that out is because in in the case of uh, uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor, for example, his ultimate is just the logical conclusion of a game you've <laughs> yeah. already won. Yeah. Mostly, I don't think that's the case with her. I think you could be in the midst of a very competitive game and using her plus ability to to threaten and to manipulate your opponent, and and they could be just putting a rock between a rock and a hard place. Also, her two abilities, plus and minus, are synergistic in that you can use the minus on one turn to tap down two of their creatures, and then they use the plus on your turn to swing in with two creatures. Yeah, so they relate to each other quite well. And but but the other thing is is that how good her plus ability is is heavily related to the creature base you're using and as we've been discussing in today's show there are just all manner of yeah. creature bases that well, are playable in vintage you, you could be all over the place 
with what creatures you're presenting with her possibility. Yeah, and, and we also have a vintage format right now where creature production can happen at any time. So it's it's really unpredictable yeah. to know like what the game state is going to be at at any given st- you know stage of the game, <laughs> let alone turn. You know, like you yeah. could you know we but neither player could have a creature, and then the next two turns, you know, on the, the exactly exactly so. <laughs> Um, it's it's intriguing to say the least. Like to think about which of these abilities to use, and and what do they mean strategically? Like what are you building towards? Like are you trying to just generate some affidian effects right now, or are you building towards mm-hmm. the whatever? Um, and of course, like you're saying, your opponent has a really strong incentive to try and take this thing out once it's a table because it's deadly. Yep, yep. And it's it's also worth noting that if you can consistently maximize her plus ability, two things. One, she can draw you more cards than Jace. Right. This is potentially plus two cards every time, but that's not actually the maximal ability because the way the ability is worded is until your next turn, whenever either of those creatures deals combat damage, you draw a card. Think about what happens when you have a creature with vigilance. Yeah, you can be on offense. And you swing in and get the damage, and they can't attack in unless they want to give you another card. If you had two vigilance creatures, you can conceivably draw four cards with one activation here. And that doesn't count double strike, which is rarely played in vintage, but still a possibility. Not that I think anyone's going to add double strike creatures to their deck just for this. <clears throat> But the simple truth is there's lots of play here. You said something a minute ago that I wanted to carry on to, and that was what your ultimate goal is. There are some creature decks where hitting your opponent two times or four times is going to mean that they're dead. <laughs> so she, I don't think she's maximized, for her plus ability at least, is not maximized in a deck that has big creatures that are beating your opponent down. If you have big creatures, if you've got Thought Not Seer and Reality Smasher, then her minus two ability is where it's at. You just want to make them not block and and kill them, which is, I believe, an acceptable use of her, but probably not the best one. Not ideal. You'll still take the game wins if you've got them, but I don't think that's an ideal deck construction. Sometimes it'll happen, but whatever. I think... I think the Ophidian example is probably where she is at her best. A, a, a deck that has a certain density of creatures and can control the board such that your Snapcaster mages and similar utility creatures are what's doing the damage. And then yeah. you are re- well, really you're really abusing there's your There's another at that point, point to be made. Is that if these, these aren't just Ophidians because with Ophidians, they actually have to attack in, whereas it says until your next turn. So even on defense, they yeah. can help draw you cards. So you can like... You know, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can use it on your creatures and dare your yeah, opponent to attack. exactly, to continue to build up to two. I think I think a lot of people mm-hmm. have been overly dismissive of this card because I think, you know, if you compare it to Jace the Mind Sculptor, it seems unfavorable. But Jace the Mind Sculptor can't, doesn't have an ultimate that's even close to this. And I think you're right. I think it just takes three more turns. You can begin, once you begin ultimate, this thing just take, completely dominates the game, right? I mean, that's what you're saying, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, oh yeah. But that's another reason why I think the, the maximal use of this Tamio is in a deck that's not a, just an aggro deck. It's a deck that's uh, an aggro control deck with a certain density of creatures whereby you're threatening with her plus, you're threatening serious right. card advantage if, the, if it happens. Yeah. But as soon as you go ultimate, you've got all these other things. It's probably a gush deck. It's probably a dig through time yeah, deck. Yeah, like it right? could even be a mentor deck, a, a, a bigger, a wider, broader yes. mentor deck. Yes. That's what I'm that's what what I was alluding to, yes. Ah. Such that this ultimate is truly, truly threatening. Because this ultimate with with a mentor in play is probably legal. Yeah, I, I think the key, the key thing for me is is so assuming you get into play, you can take it up to five immediately. Um, yep. 
then you have to get up to eight, and then you can activate it. It's, well, the sorry, ultimate so is minus seven. Need, yeah, so it's going to take yeah. four turns after it comes into play to activate the ultimate. It, yes. it, it, that's another that's another so, reason why I think this is goes into a, a so the aggro control is, deck. From my perspective, is Jace the Mind Sculptor for four turns better than like if if you could do that uninvited, what would you rather have? Would you rather have Jace mm-hmm. or would you rather have this? I mean, obviously, it sounds better to have this, but the Jace probably can get you to whatever you want after four turns of being unimpeded, right? Uh, you're not wrong, but then we end up doing a little bit of a challenging calculus of the difference between brainstorms and just card yeah. draws, right? So you're completely right. The first time you brainstorm, you're replacing. You're, you're more likely to find the first thing. time you're replacing, yeah. but then everyone after all, that's a jam day tome. Yeah, and there's all kinds of related synergies with uh, gush, of course. Yep. And and other things and and fetch lands, so it becomes very complex. But you make a fair point. But I would argue that the Again, I think the best use of this Tamiyo is a mixture. I think the the uh, a lot of people I think would say the best use of Jace the Mind Sculptor is just brainstorming every turn. That's definitely true. Yeah, we know we've seen people fate seal. Well, it used to be the case that that was true, and then that's an interesting feature of Jace the Mind Sculptor is that when Jace was first printed, the go-to I mean, people did not fate seal. It wasn't until 2013 yeah, or so when Bolt started, yeah, started Bolt. that people started fade sealing, and now people don't even fade seal because of Lightning Bolt. They just do it because it's the better play. It, yeah, it's, fade seal's sure. become far more prevalent than it was, and not it's just, people were anyway. I, I I get exactly what you're saying. I just think that the a deck that's designed to abuse this Tamio will use her first two modes. I, I don't want to say equally, but she they will have the ability to abuse both yeah, modes. I see. And yeah, and going down, coming into play, and tapping two creatures or tapping two non-land permanents right off the bat, I can see being a very common play because it facilitates a lot of things. It facilitates immediate damage. Drawing it cards facilitates next turn. Certain, drawing cards next turn. Yeah, it facilitates certain permanents not working so, properly. So you could like, you could um, surpass what Jace can do in some respects. So if you can just lock down. That's yeah, kind of lo- what I'm getting. You lock down at, some yeah. threats. Then next turn you draw three cards, and then you're just like off to the races. If yeah, if you lock down two threats to turn you player, and the next turn you draw two cards, that's you know it's two real cards plus two virtual cards. You, you're probably further ahead than what Jace could provide in some scenarios, because Jace's bounce is nice and everything, but it's not always effective removal. It's frequently yeah. not effective removal, and her tapping ability is also not removal, but on a short term, it can be better than the than a bounce. I I just think you can construct a deck that really really abuses every mode. I think you're right. So let's think. And I'm glad you I'm glad you pointed out the loyalty thing because her starting at four and then going to five means well, what does it mean? It means I was going to say it means she's more resilient to bolt, but I just realized you're plussing either way. If you minus her, she still dies to bolt, just like with Jace. So I guess that's kind of a non-issue. But she goes from four down to two, so she's a little more fragile in combat if you do the tap thing. If your opponent has three or more creatures, she's. I think there to is one one big 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 vulnerability which we have not hit on. Um, and that okay. is the fact that, so let's say you're playing Sylvan Mentor, right? And like, you've got like one of these weird creature configurations of like two, three Mentor, one Seeker of the Way, like one, let's just say Dragon Lord Remoka, whatever. There's a good chance uh-huh. that you don't have a creature. There's a good chance that you don't have a creature in play when this hits. I would agree in that example. That's why I believe the deck that abuses her has a slightly higher density. I, I believe it has two or three Snapcasters, could have a, well, it could have mentors, or it oh. could be a bigger control deck. It could have spell quellers. You know, I think such a deck has eight to ten. Well, what I was going to it. say is that that shows a limitation vis-a-vis Jace, because Jace is like a great turn one play, like regardless, right? I mean, like <laughs> Unreal. 
Yeah. You're right. That's a good point. She's harder Certainly. to play on turn one, so it's going to happen less out of necessity. But you're right. She's even on super aggressive turns like turn two. The deck I'm describing doesn't want to play her on turn two even most of the time. Unless you had, unless you had Lotus Mentor on turn one, you're not going to want to play yeah. her on two. That's a good point. Jace is kind of better in a vacuum and better in, in more broad board states. Yeah. Yeah. But on the flip side, on the flip side, she ultimates much faster than Jace. So if you had her on one, she goes to five loyalty. You don't draw any cards, right? But your opponent has to play a creature on their first turn if they want to deal with her. If they don't, she's going to six on your second turn, and you're two turns away from her ultimate. <laughs> Of course. You see my point? Yeah. So her ultimate is fa- as much faster to threaten than Jace's is. Uh, and that might not make a big difference. There are cert- plenty of cert- certainly plenty of games you could just straight up lose <laughs> in the meantime. That's funny. She also somewhat punishes your oath opponents for giving you spirits, but that's probably not a game-winning scenario. Hmm. Although tapping down Gristlebrand sure, is, is big sure. game. Yeah, I mean, Jace's ultimate is is a very long game play. It happens, but it's a long yes. game play. It does. It does. I, yeah. So I, I don't. I'm not gonna. If I had Lotus and her and and another Mox and a land, so, I mean, it's it's harder to do than Jace. But I would definitely still cast her and plus so her on the first turn. So if you're playing with this card, I think there's one of two things that you're trying to do. One is that you are trying mm-hmm. to just generate a lot of card advantage from Ophidian effects. So she's like a bant a bant fish type planeswalker. The second thing you're trying to do is you're yep. trying to get to a game winning ultimate, which is not anything we've ever seen from planeswalkers before. So because we haven't seen it, it leaves me with a dose of skepticism. Uh, mm, um, fair enough. But that doesn't. I would be very impressed to see. I mean, you know, it's conceivable, just like the dark petition thing is conceivable. <laughs> uh, here, here's a l- let me give you a counterpoint to that though. I, I may. <laughs> I, I made a, an overstatement earlier when I said a lot of people think that brainstorm is Jace's primary function, right? I still think some people feel that way. Like if you're not brainstorming with Jace, you're doing something wrong. But Jace's brainstorm does not threaten his ultimate. Yeah. You're still, it's it's kind of a mini ultimate of sorts, right? If you brainstorm with Jace five turns in a row, you yep. probably won the game. Yep. I think a lot of people feel that way and it's true a lot of the time. But the simple truth is, is he's, not, he's not gaining loyalty. Tamio is is the opposite of that though. If you're executing her primary plan, you're also working toward her ultimate, which is, is an advantage that Jace doesn't really have. With Jace, a lot of people feel like you're turning off his advantage to try and work toward his mm-hmm. ultimate, right? Yeah, that's an oversimplification, yeah. but I know a lot of people feel that way. Like, okay, I gotta start fate sealing now. <laughs> you know, it's it's ho hum kind of. You're changing your game plan. That's not the case with her. You know, if you're threatening creatures or creature combat or just protecting her with her plus ability you're you're exercising your primary plan if your deck is work built correctly and you're well, threatening we, her ultimate yeah i That's mean so her ultimate is is more feasible than almost any we've seen you know there are there are and her ultimate is also more valuable than any we've seen i mean dak and jace it, it's super yeah. potent good grief is it potent i mean a, a, a good example, actually, would be um, Tezzeret Agent of Bolas, sure. right? But his no. ultimate is not as game-winning. No, it could win a game, but it's not nearly as reliably game-winning as hers. But it's a, it's a similar goal, though. It's a, by executing his plus ability, you're getting advantage and threatening his ultimate. Now, he goes online the next turn after you plus him, so comparison's a little bit wonky. But regardless, I don't, I, I feel like... She's playable. I feel like in the right deck, she's going to be very threatening, and, and people are going to groan when somebody <laughs> plays the, her against them. Um, and I think some people, I think if you build your deck right, people are going to find her hard to deal with. That's another thing, is that Jace, Jace doesn't have a reputation about being hard right. to deal with. Right? I mean, 
there are certain ways that we've become become accustomed to dealing with the Jays, and I think a Tamio deck with a slightly higher creature density is gonna is going to make it harder to deal with Tamio. Yeah, I, I anyway. do want to point out one last tension though, and that is that <laughs> yeah. the although you are completely right in that the mechanically the sequencing of her abilities sort of naturally there's a natural scaffolding there that leads like one mm-hmm. that ladders one to the other but but strategically i think the scaffolding doesn't hold the architecture of it's wrong because on the one hand you want to be playing like a noble fish type deck so you can maximize the capacity for the affinity effects but the ultimate is diluted mm-hmm. if you're playing a fish deck <laughs> Well, that's why I said I think the right deck here has has what did I say eight eight to yeah. ten creatures or something. I I I don't I would not recommend playing with noble hierarchs and Tamio. I don't think that's a recipe for success. I think it's a it's I think Snapcaster Mage is the poster child for the Tamio deck. It's a control card that is getting incremental advantage by being the only creature you've got in play, or one of a couple creatures. You're controlling the board, you're snapcastering back swords to plowshares, and you're getting incremental value by hitting them for two. Because hitting them for two and drawing a card is way better than just hitting them for two. <laughs> I mean, you've turned your snapcaster mage into a way, way better creature if you're drawing a card with it. So that's that's the model I've got in mind. That's why I mentioned yeah, spell quality. I understand. Or, the, or I, I the, think, similar I of think a click. The, ten- you know? the principle I just described is still a tension. It is a tension, I will grant you that. But that's but I think that managed, good deck building will, will yeah. address it. Um, yeah, because if I've drawn if I've drawn four to six cards from my creatures in the intervening turns, you better believe I can make use of omniscience. <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt there. Okay. Be- and because you get her emblem, how fun is it going to be to draw a second Tamio? <laughs> I'd be like, I'll ultimate this Tamio, and I'll play this Tamio, and I'll plus her, and I'll draw two cards, and then I'll totally go nuts because I've got ten cards in my hand. Because I just drew five in addition to the eight to ten I was already holding. It's ridiculous. <clears throat> that's that's. I know that sounds like magical Christmas land. It's not always going to go that well. But if you got to ultimate her, her and were holding another one and had two creatures in play, I think that turn would go your way. Right. <laughs> uh, but now I'm now I'm just gushing about the ultimate of a planeswalker. <laughs> I don't think I don't think she is going to become a mainstay of the format. I think she's. I don't know. After all that gushing I just did, I think she's only a little bit better than, say, Narset. Huh. Yeah, I've lost. I've lost track which, of the the sheer quantity of these blue planeswalkers that haven't actually made it. I know, right? Well, to put some in perspective, Narset had one top eight in February, one in April, and one in May. That's there's been three top eights for Narset in 2016. I think she might be slightly better than Narset, but that's a equivocation huh. i can't really support i just feel like she leads to she's a better also deck. harder to cast i mean the green is not easy uh you, you probably need to have noble hierarch or death right shaman well probably, i don't agree with you there i mean but that just means that, that just if you're not playing with death right shaman and noble hierarch it's going to be yeah it's slower well, and less reliable yeah. to get advantage out of her first ability uh i would agree with you there she's less aggressive less reliable less fast in that sense so you might be right. It might have to be a Deathrite Shaman deck, but I'm not not entirely sold that that's the ideal use. But you're right. I mean, one of the powers of Jace the Mind Sculptor is, hey, play it on turn three off of this gush, or hey, I drew my Lotus. Here it is. Tamio doesn't isn't quite as over the top in those contexts, but we'll see. <clears throat> Man, Time Walk. Time Walk is going to feel like such a bigger beating with her than it does with Jace. If you've got the two creatures, that's going to be so big. <laughs> I hope to make it work. All right, I'm I am not going a very high number with her because I think her, all the reasons you've listed are good constraints on her success. 
I still think people are going to be really attracted to her, and I'm going to go with I'm going to go with uh, three. I'm going zero. Okay, this will be an interesting one to tease out. Well, it wouldn't be a review of huh, an Eldritch Moon if we didn't talk about Emrakul, the promised end. She's 13 for a 13-13, which is one of the themes of the set. Legendary creature Eldrazi. Emrakul, the promised end, costs one less to cast for each card type among cards in your graveyard. When you cast Emrakul, you gain control of target opponent during that player's next turn. After that turn, that player takes an extra turn. Flying, trample, protection from instance. An enigma as vexing as life hmm. itself. Isn't yeah, that's, that the that's the motto for this set. We we should be pretty clear up front that casting Eldrazi of this stature is not a thing no. in Vintage right now. I mean, the, uh, omniscience decks are on the decline. I thought that maybe the new Causalect that drew you a bunch of theoretically drew you a bunch of cards was going to help that archetype, and I was wrong. But that was three sets ago now. <clears throat> but the top eights from Omniscience are not that much. There have been three in 2016, and two of them were in April, so... But that all having been said, this might be the cheapest of the big titans if you can maximize her. Cheapest as compared to the power of her effect. So that's probably going to be where our conversation is going to primarily tilt, is that first sentence. Emrakul, the promised end, costs one less for each card type among cards in your graveyard. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that we've se- we, we, we know how explosive the Eldrazi mana could be. I mean, with an Ivugan, uh, a, a temple. Yeah, she costs a temple, four less. Yeah, basically. and uh, in, or that yeah. costs four mana. The, the problem, the fundamental problem, is that these Eldrazi decks don't have a lot of spell variety, card type variety. So, yeah. you know, you're not gonna, you know, so you're not gonna be getting tribal enchantment, artifact, land, instant sorcery, right? And <laughs> and planeswalker. Right. I think that's all the card types right now. There's equip equipment is artifact. So yeah, equipment is yeah. not a card type. Yeah, there are seven. Yeah, there are seven. So, yeah, I mean, at most in the regular Eldrazi deck, you're going to probably have four, maybe five, right? In an Eldrazi deck, I think you're going to be pushing it yeah. to have four. Le- well, what land- four are you thinking of? Land yeah. is obvious. Creature yeah, land creature is obvious. artifacts is, are the three, and probably instant is the fourth. Dismember, Warping Whale, something like that. Yeah. Well, uh, a typical Eldrazi deck is not going to have an easy time getting an artifact in its discard pile. That's true. And you're going to have moxes. That is very true. You don't, you don't have yeah, artifact creatures. You're right. Unless you've got one lodestone golem. I mean, so they do I, run null rod. I, I don't want. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I. I don't want to stymie conversation here, but I don't believe that the, the Eldrazi archetype is the, this home for this. The point is, yeah. The point is that if you are going to be using this, this in the Eldrazi, you're going to get like maybe shave three mana off the casting cost. You're going to get more benefit from the fact that you've got Eldrazi Temple, Ancient Tomb, and Eye of Ugin in yeah. play <laughs> than you exactly. are from your graveyard. Yeah. So let's let's try and talk about a reasonable scenario then. Let's say you're playing a normal game. Maybe you've wastelanded your opponent. Maybe one of your creatures have died. You've got creature and land in your discard pile. Maybe you play the dismember. Maybe you've got three. So that reduces her cost to ten. Eye of Ugin makes her eight. You would still need to tap four lands at yeah. least to Yeah, you'd need her. two temples, two tombs. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> So the maximum, I, I was wrong before, the maximum discount you can get on her cost is 8. What's the 8th card type? 
I, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember what you I said, listed. I said tribal I planeswalker, yeah. artifact, enchantment, land creature, and instant. I did say instant. say instant. I did actually instant. Artifact, creature, enchantment, instant, land, planeswalker, sorcery, yep. and tribal. You may have said them all by now, but just to so be okay. clear, there's eight. Now, vintage context in a, a, a non-tribal Eldrazi deck, right? So your regular old deck that's designed to get some cards in its discard pile is going to have an easy time with land because of fetch lands and a relatively easy time with instant and sorcery because of probe preordain and which, which deck type are we talking about well just a, a generic bluish vintage deck that's trying to get card types in okay. its discard pile that's all i'm just saying what's easy to yeah. do i believe that you can reliably have three card types in your discard pile by turn two in a deck that's constructed instant land and sorcery i agree yep yes after that, it's not hard to get at least one more type, depending on how you've built your deck, creatures or artifacts. Um, but to get any to get any more than that is going to, I think, require dedicated looting or well, discarding. Well, what's interesting is, yeah, so discard effects like Thoughtseize. What's interesting is that Tarmogoyf looks at all graveyards. Right, and she only looks at your own. Right, is that, that's correct. Tarmogoyf does look at all? Your, you, okay. What you said is right. Yeah. Tarmogoyf looks at all. Yeah. She only looks at yours. So a deck that's trying to do this intentionally would almost certainly have some more looting, like Jace or Dak or Thirst or Intuition or Factor Fiction. Yeah, I mean, Jace Friend's Prodigy. Of options. Yep. But Jace Friend's Prodigy and Dak are probably high on the list. And Thirst, Thirst makes sense. I agree. If you're really going for this goal, you'd probably be a Thirst yeah. deck. At, at which point you're going to be able to quickly get, in addition to Land, Instant, and Sorcery, you're going to be quickly able to get probably Creature and Artifact. If you have a sufficient density of creatures, if you've got Jaces and Snapcasters probably and a couple more creatures, you're probably going to be able to get yeah. Creature going. But that's still a mid-game thing. You're still going to be able to get to five in the mid-game. And by mid-game, I mean turn four, plus or minus one. Because you've got to leave time for yourself to play a Jace, play a Thirst maybe, probably turn four. You're going to have reduced her cost by five, making her cost eight. Eight is still not a cheap vintage spell. No. <laughs> eight no. is... You're going to have to have drained their yeah. force of will, or you're going to have to be playing Mana Vault and keys in your deck. Which would synergize with Thirst. It'd probably be it. We've talked about this kind of conversation before. Like, can you support a huge Eldrazi in a Tezzeret deck? And the answer is, yeah, but you probably don't. It's not optimal. And this is pretty expensive. I mean, eight is, that's that's out there. We talked about it with regard to a few others in the past. Does it, okay, owing back to our first card, does it make any difference if if you've got this Emrakul on your sideboard and you're playing Coax from the Blind Eternities? (laughs) I don't think that matters at all. I don't think that helps the situation if your goal is to get her on the stack. It's interesting. Black Lotus is usually going to be four for this thing. <laughs> uh, yep, that's a good example. Lotus helps her a lot. Is there anything that Black Lotus can't do? <laughs> yep. Yeah, it, it can't cast thought nuts here. <laughs> uh, that's better than my example, which was which was bridge from below. It can't. Oh. <laughs> it can't bridge from below. <laughs> it's funny. Well, anyway. Uh, I don't want to just end the conversation prematurely, but I'm feeling like even in a profitable context with all things, you know, your deck is firing on all cylinders, you're still only going to have reduced her cost well, by five. There's a lot five. of things I, I want to talk about here about her. Uh, I don't think we should focus much more okay. on her spell. Re- yeah, that's so, so, but okay. so th- these are, these are completely different aspects of her, but I did want to point out, let's start by pointing out that the, the mind slaver effect, the steal the opponent's turn is, which is awesome, by the way, it's great to see that effect mm-hmm. is, is not so subtly undermined by the, by the the way that's counterbalanced 
their opponent gets their the yeah. turn after that. So it's like, whoa, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole the whole point of of stealing a turn is often just to tap them completely down so they can't like counterspell anything. Manage yeah, and leave them vulnerable. But you're not yeah, really you're not going to be that. doing that. Um, I don't want to linger on that though. I I, I want to ask. So this card, this card, you've been calling it her or she. I'll call it it. Is flying and trample has protection from instance. That's pretty cool. So that means no yep. like chain of vapor on this thing. Uh, is Imrakul the other Imrakul is fifteen fifteen? That's still the go to show and tell Imrakul in your opinion. If you're going to show and tell Imrakul, would you show and tell? Oh y- yeah, because that one has annihilator and six from all colors. <laughs> uh, n- uh, no, but it has protection from instance. Or from colored, colored instance. instance. Okay. Yeah. So that one is m- both more potent in combat and even... Well, no, it's effectively... It has protection from That's colored spells. That's what I thought. That's what I said, I'm sorry. Yeah. So that one is effectively harder to remove than this, and it's much better in combat. That's what I thought. Yeah. So is an yeah. oath target or show and tell target, which are the most frequent ways we would cheat these into play, it's just worse. The other, of course, possibility for both is channel, and channel is better mm-hmm. with this because it puts a sorcery into the graveyard. It's cheaper, but channel's restricted. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and the difference is slight. When you're talking about the difference between 12 mana, or, I mean, like 8 or 9 exactly. mana and 15 mana with a channel, <laughs> uh, I mean, yes, there is a there's a material difference, but not a major one. You could you could try and build some sort of weird cantrip deck to get to the... I'm going to go back, though, to what you said about the, the whole Mindslaver effect. Mindslaver has historically been a very powerful thing. We've, we've viewed it as being very game-ending, but you could easily lose a game where you resolve this Emrakul and take their turn. It's it's not nearly as game-ending as the original Emrakul, taking another turn and then yeah. annihilating them for yeah. six. It's Vintage has become so much more permanent-based. Not not so much more, but Vintage is currently very permanent-based. And there's a lot more creatures than there had been when the original Emrakul came out. And I just feel like this one, this Mindslaver effect, especially for the reason you described, is, is not that backbreaking. There are certain games that will, will give you the win. If your opponent, for example, has uh, Arcband Ravager off the top, right? They won't. If they have one in play, they won't ever give you a turn with their own Ravager. But if you pull one off the top and can sack their whole board to it, that's a game-winning play. And likewise, if your DPS opponent has Bargain or Necro that you can cast, that's a game-winning play for you. But a lot of decks like Mentor, you might be able to plow their Mentor, but yeah. you can't. You could- you can't really destroy well, those decks with their even own if, cards. Yeah, even if you like, like let's say flash. The best case scenario is is something in a mentor deck where you like flashback cabal therapy, sacrificing the mentor, and make y- your them discard their best card. Even then, it's just not that yeah. bad breaking. Like it's well, well, you could play a couple counter spells. Like you could you probably could empty their hand. Their hand. So, I mean, yeah, certain combinations. They may still be left with creatures though. But even if they're left won't. with a couple of tokens, is I guess you're probably gonna win the game, but they still get another turn. It's, but they get another turn and they could uh, yeah I mean there's a lot I, well guess what I'm getting at is there are a lot of board states in vintage that would not be de facto won by this mind slaver I don't want to suggest that I would look a mind slaver in the mouth yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I I would like to point out that the the original mind slaver which was such a vintage staple for years upon years has made one top eight in 2016 and that's with all of its accoutrement and supporting cast 
getting even better, right? Yep. The, the control slaver concept got even better with the printing of DAC and then even better with the printing of Jaceprint Prodigy and then Thirst got unrestricted. All the tools are there and the original Mind Slaver, which is cheaper than this, is just not a thing. Yeah, it's 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 not to say this effect isn't incredibly powerful. It's just very expensive yeah. and it's just not worth the price. The I I think we should move on. Me I don't too. think anyone's really expecting this that, to be. That's kind of why I I wanted to ask. Just you know, if you're gonna oath, if you're gonna oath a, a large Eldrazi, what's the one you're gonna oath into? I think the answer is yep. still the the Aeons, Aeons Torn. <laughs> I agree. I agree. The ends do not justify the means. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to one curious homunculus. One you creature homunculus. One one. Tap. Add colorless to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to cast an instant or sorcery spell at the beginning of your upkeep. If there are three or more instant and or sorcery cards in your graveyard, transform Curious Homunculus. When you transform Curious Homunculus, it becomes Voracious Reader, which is a hilarious title. Yes, it is. Creature Eldrazi Homunculus. It's 3-4 with prowess and instant and sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast. Now, this is a very, very fun Mm -hmm. card, right? The gateway drug to homunculus tribal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, we don't really need to belabor the mana cost too much. This is an eminently castable card in vintage. It's only a 1-1 one, one on the face, the front face, but uh, transforms into a 3-4 which with prowess, which is an okay body. We just talked about it a lot with Bed- Bedlam Reveler. It taps to add mana, which not a lot of tapping to add mana creatures are played in Vintage that don't cost one mana, right? This notion of tapping a creature for mana is foreign to anything that costs more than one right now. In in the current, form, I guess yeah. in the current form, I guess Metalworker would have been an exception. Well, that's a term. Metalworker is functionally a one mana with the functionally a one mana creature. You're right. Uh, but the fact that this is colorless mana that can be only spent on instants and sorceries is a limitation of sorts, and it will be a limitation in certain contexts, but it's still a reasonable use of some mana if you build your deck right. I agree. Yeah. Uh, this flip condition, let's talk about that for a sec. At the beginning of your upkeep, if there are three or more instants and or sorcery cards in your graveyard, that seems imminently reasonable. Uh, this is almost certainly going to be a Gataxian probe deck and a preordained deck, probably. And then beyond that, it could be it could be a therapy deck, it could be a ritual deck, it could be a lightning bolt or a swords to plowshares deck. It could be lots of different yeah, decks. Yeah, funny. I think very reasonably reliable to flip this. Maybe not all the time on the turn after you play it, but it's not out of the question, right? Turn one, probe and ponder, or probe and preordain. Turn two, this. Turn three. Oh, because oh yeah, you can play a spell in response to the trigger. I think because it doesn't have an intervening if. I'm actually I'm not 100 percent sure on that. I'd have to I'd have to confirm this one. Let me look up. Citing from the Eldritch Moon release note, if you don't have enough instant and or sorcery cards in your graveyard as your upkeep begins, Curious Homunculus last ability doesn't trigger. So if you start your upkeep with two, you can't play one to get the flip that upkeep. Okay, that's, that's like Oath of Druids. Yep. That's too bad. But anyway, so that's that's kind of a strike against it. I mean, if you play this on curve, you're still not, not going to get the flip on curve unless you had a really busted first turn. You, you could go probe, preordain, and enforce a will something and play this on two. It's probably going to happen occasionally, but it's not very reliable. Hmm. Although I do like the flipped side of this. It's a creature, promotes spell playing in both cost and power. Hmm. I don't know. I don't think this supplants the existing two drops in a Pyromancer or a Mentor shell right now. 
partially because those decks are not built to abuse reductions in mana costs, right? Your deck is filled with gush and ponder and preordains and probes and therapies and one cost removal spells. <laughs> You're not going to benefit from this cost reduction at all or the mana that the homunculus provides. Wow. You're going to have to reconstruct the deck. You're going to have to fill your deck with two and three mana instants in order to really get benefit off of this. I saw some people on the drain talking about using it in like a goblin electromancer in Dark Petition. Yeah. And that deck has plenty more things that would reduce in cost and enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, intuition is is the obvious way to get, up, sure. get out of this, get something out of it. Sure. I, I like the fact, though, that, that even when he's going to trigger, you can put the trigger on the stack and then generate a mana. So. Yeah, that's cute. So you can play something during your upkeep if you've got yeah. it. But uh, but he's a turn one play. You know, one in the blue is eminently playable in Vintage. We have tons of cards that do that. Um, so Definitely. he's a turn one play. Uh, then even after that, you can begin using him. So you can use him to to play cards, you know, a whole range of cards, right? You, granted, only instants or sorceries, but there are plenty of instants or sorceries that you might want to use even if, if, before you flip him. So I don't... A little bit of deck construction goes a long way in that regard. He facilitates certain counterspells that are less common, like we discussed Romand, Insubstantiate, Mana Leak, that kind of thing, become much better with this card in your deck. Definitely. Um, and, you know, he can use, he can be, he can play things like Merchant Scroll or Demonic Tutor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then you really get, you know, you really get value out of him if you use him to play cards like Intuition. Yeah, I agree. You've said Intuition twice, and that really does seem like the card that gets the most value Yeah, it's here. a tutor. You're talking about, are you thinking about Intuition for AK? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It really could be anything, but... Yeah. Well, I think that you, you want to get something where you get, you want to get something that gets something else so you can get the most value out of that effect right intuition for tutors yeah, yeah or, or even tutor for another t- you know spell but exactly exactly mm-hmm. well it certainly seems like a powerful utility and if you were to construct your deck such that it had a sufficient density of these effects well, for example merchant scroll is not common these days in the gush deck no it's not it's, that is to say it's not a given anymore yeah. like it used to this be. is not to me this is not a but, gush card this is not a card for a gush deck no, I agree, but my point is simply that certain cards have fallen out of favor, and I think this card really wants a Merchant Scroll in its deck. Yeah. And you're, I think you could make good use of Black in terms of Demonic Tutor and Yawgmoth's Will. Oh, Yawgmoth's Will with this is pretty sick, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, you know, Gifts Ungiven might be interesting with this card, too. There you go. That's something where you could use it to play the Gifts, it flips, and it also helps you flip it, right? Because the Gifts can bend things. Yeah, so if either intuition or gifts, this card helps facilitate a a, a recoup Yogmoth's will kind of interaction. Yeah, can't because it cuts mana off of every part of that. It combo. can't cast Snapcaster, but it can cast anything else. Yep, I I don't see this card making gifts a thing again. <laughs> really, the most logical place for it in the current metagame is Dark Petition Storm. Those decks have been jonesing for a two mana creature for to to really round them out. Lots of dark confidants and even uh, oh, pack rats <laughs> lately, and this one could fill a similar role to that. It's a reasonable beatdown threat too. That is to say, if you are playing a, I don't want to say grindy, but if you're playing a resource war against a, a deck with a sufficient density of counter spells, and you don't have enough to just go off in a in a storm ten, flipping this and then. Pl- <laughs> Play a, a Thoughtseize 
or a defense grid and then hit them for four and then next turn hit them for three again maybe they fetch they could be at 12 that dramatically changes their requirements for a tendrils if two hits of this gets them down to 12 ish or less i mean that's that was being charitable that's only one prowess trigger on two hits there could easily be several yeah three, three oh and four. conversely it, yeah conversely if you've got this out, then you can, even if they're at 20 and you've got this creature out, if you tendrils them for, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, if you tendrils them with only six copies, you will have triggered prowess six times. So that's 12 that you've taken them from the, the tendrils, and then this thing will be, have nine power. That's 19. So if this, you start your turn with this thing flipped, you tendrils them for six and then swing. That's 19. So it dramatically reduces your tendrils requirements if it's in play. And it could finish a game itself if you're just taking a couple of turns of dealing with their hand via thought seize or making removal type plays like with Chain of Vapor. You could actually finish a game with one of these. That and it buys you time against a mentor deck. Just a little bit of time could be the difference. <clears throat> I think it's an apt comparison to Goblin Electromancer, which doesn't happen in Vintage. And the only other thing I could think of would be Medallion. Yeah, <laughs> going way Sapphire back. Medallion. Yeah, but that doesn't happen in Vintage right now either. So there's kind of no analog right now that sees play. The closest thing would be just a creature that taps for mana, and that's a poor analog. Yeah, but but so there are a lot of tutors that we've discussed already. We went all the way up from intuition to gifts to dark petition, and all all mm-hmm. those can can help you play things that you find with those cards as well. So yeah, so maybe the deck that can abuse it most is an intuition slash gifts tendrils deck. <laughs> You're dark probably petition. not going to play all three of those things, but <laughs> no, I would agree. Uh, <laughs> one or t- one or t- other. Four intuitions, <laughs> four gifts, and four dark petition. <laughs> Let's think about it in a different way, okay? We've already got existing archetypes that promote playing multiple spells in Mentor or Pyromancer. Yeah, Unfortunately, as I but those said... Are all, those are all gushing into one narrow channel, which is playing these these spells that don't have colorless in them, like preordained, things yeah. like that, yeah. That's that's what I'm wondering, though, is what if you take a Pyrogrush... Grush? What if you take a Pyrogush shell... Ah, uh, never mind. It's gonna You're going to end up changing almost all the cards. What if you take a... A Grixis Gifts kind of shell. Put in a couple of these and a couple of Pyromancers. Now you've got a creature base, both of which synergize off of playing spells. Then you get your Gifts engine going, such that you're threatening Yawgmoth's will. Maybe there's a Tendrils in this deck, maybe there's Key Vault. Both of those creatures like Tinker. I mean, both of them get Prowess or, or Elementals off of a Tinker. Maybe that's the approach you're taking, where you have some wide creatures, you have some tall creatures, and you have a combo finish. We haven't seen a like a Bob Jace deck play Pyromancers, mostly because those Bob Jace decks just get housed by Gush for the last several years. But maybe you could synergize a list that played its own Pyromancers to help stem that bleeding and try to go over the top with Gifts or Intuition. Uh, it seems unlikely. Yeah, and, and there's value also. So, so uh, I mean, I, I, I don't see hit this being played in a Gush deck, and, and I don't. I, I think it, it's, yeah. it's going to power up these other things, but it also has use as an anti-sphere effect. You know, it it can. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you you make a fair point against a workshop deck. Depending on what my sideboard plan is, I might want this more than the Pyromancer, right? Yeah. Think about that. If your sideboard plan includes one or more Ancient Grudge or 
Hercules Recall. Definitely. Depending on your deck. Definitely. This this is the well, card you well, want. Well, you can also use it to pay, like, even pay, like, I don't know. If your opponent has a sphere in play, you can use it to pay, uh, you know, like a shattering, or shattering spree. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's a very good point. So against workshops, I think I would rather have this mana producer if it's going to help me cast my sideboard cards. Can you be... If your sideboard cards are just ingot oh, tours, then not really. Well, but... cast lightning bolt or whatever. Yeah. Sure, sure. That's a good point. Well, and the same goes for Thalia decks. In fact, this card is a beating against Thalia oh, yeah. every way. Oh, yeah, it's a 3-4 once it flips. That's, well, that's, a, that's kind of a compelling case, don't you Definitely. think? Because a young pyromancer needs three tokens to take down a Thalia. This thing just needs to flip. Now, granted, that's not when Thalia is in play. That's not the easiest thing in the world to do. But still, that's a big threat. Oh, it has terrible synergy with uh, Displacer, though. Oh, yeah. That's a, <laughs> yeah, that's he comes right back as homunculus, doesn't he? <laughs> A tapped 1-1. One, one. Well, that's too bad. Most creatures have terrible synergy with <laughs> Displacer now that I think about it. I Of all the things in this set, I will be surprised if this is the one that breaks through. We've got some blue goodies we've been covering here between Tamio and Spell Queller and Unsubstantiate. Yeah. I just... Well, in the environment, environment where Gush tends to be among the best performing blue decks, the bigger mana blue decks just are, are le- the least less likely contenders at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the the strongest case right there. I'm going to go with zero, even though this card is adorable and I'd love to see it succeed. Me too. It, I mean, I love Intuition Next. and Gush decks. So, I mean, <laughs> right, sorry, right. Intuition and Gips decks. So, oh, okay, Agreed. I love Gush decks too. But <laughs> <laughs> Next up. Lupine Prototype for two mana, two generic mana. Artifact creature Wolf Construct. It's a 5-5. Lupine Prototype can't attack or block unless a player has no cards in hand. Two mana 5-5 is big game. This is reliably a turn one play. (laughs) I mean, reliably a turn one play in Vintage. If you've put together a workshop deck with Ancient Tombs and Moxon and you're not playing this on turn one, you should mulligan. (laughs) I, I like no, that. Granted. I like this. These kinds of extreme conditionalities. Remember, we talked about this in terms of designing cards <laughs> yeah. for vintage. This is exactly yeah. what we're talking. Now, now, don't we take it too extreme? Isn't there like a an artifact creature that's that's like this, but you have to have like no cards in your library or something? No cards in your library. Yeah. What is that card? Boy, you're, you've really stymied me here. <laughs> but let's let's just get out of the way. The mana cost here is nothing. That's that's an obvious. Eminently playable. Thing yeah. That, Trivial, trivially, trivially playable. <clears throat> the conditionality is everything, though. So, can you empty your hand in vintage? Sure. If you construct your deck right, that would also be trivial. A good, a good example of that would be tiny robots. Tiny robots could be tweaked just a little bit, such that almost every turn it would empty, it's empty its hand by the second turn. Between between Memnites and Ornithopters and Cranial Platings and Genesis Chambers and all the other cheap stuff, you can have an empty hand pretty darn fast. Now that deck plays... Uh, deck plays Skull Clamp, so that's there's a, there's a tiniest tiniest bit of dissynergy between Skull Clamp and this card, but you might still play Skull Clamp because it's Skull Clamp. <clears throat> but the real trick is, is I don't think such a deck is if its goal is to just straight race its, itself to getting an empty hand, it's probably not the best build. Those decks do still have a little bit of mid to late game with cards like Tangle yeah. Wire and Wasteland, some other things. I mean, those, they're not geared to do that. And if they do that, they're actually at a disadvantage in a lot of cases. But regardless, so uh, to me, the question then becomes, does switching the nature of a deck like Tiny Robots to be very hyper-aggressive 
does that gain you ground because you get to play this two mana five five? And my instincts tell me no, but I'd love to discuss it further. Well, this is hellbent, and mm-hmm. um, the the question you were posing is what's the how conditional or how difficult it is to get hellbent? Not not that difficult, in fact. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't. I don't think difficulty of it is actually the right metric. I think how good is your yeah. deck if all it does is empty its hand on turn two every game, because you're giving up certain things. You're giving up a more reliable mana base. You have to you have to lower your land count. I think you have to play more Moxen, and you're giving up on certain mid to late game cards. You you can't play a lot of Tangle Wire plus Lodestone plus much of anything else. You can't play a lot of three and four mana cards in that deck because then this card is just dead. And you need to be very careful about how much skull clamp you play and how you manage it. Yeah. Um, so my, my instincts tell me that a deck like Tiny Robots, it trades a lot on its explosiveness, but it also needs to have certain role players and certain late game cards and or a draw engine like Clamp. And if you sacrifice those things for the sake of speed, you're going to end up losing more than you win, I think. One one way to think about this card is it doesn't do anything at first, but it might it hmm. might be a good it might be a good sort of like final thing to put a bunch of Ravager tokens onto. You know, like once you've emptied your hand, a, a lethal and alpha strike. You know, is it worth it to invest something in that at the beginning of the beginning of the game, even though you can't use it immediately? That's one one way. Of- that doesn't that doesn't seem like a very ideal use case. This is a creature without evasion, and it's already five five. I mean, yeah. Wouldn't you if you had a bunch of Ravager tokens? Wouldn't you have rather have two five five threats instead of one ten ten one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess for artifact decks and Eldrazi decks, it's not super easy to get to get hellbent. I mean, the uh, we know that people play Ensnaring Bridge in these decks sometimes, but yeah, not the way they're currently built. It's not. Yeah. This would be a departure. It wouldn't take much. You would just have to cut a little bit of the high end and speed up the mana. That is to say, probably cut a few lands. Put more, put more mox opals in, and that kind of thing. And you lose so much of the, what, what do you call it? You lose so much of sort of the flexibility and versatility those decks generate. Yeah, it, it's such a high cost, I think, to impose on a deck uh, to to include a card like this. I, I I don't see it. Also, in certain matchups, just because you have a five five enormous creature it's on turn nothing. one, <laughs> it's not gonna, it's not actually going to make the difference. Your opponent plays Young Pyromancer and blocks forever. Uh, yeah, this is just one of the creatures they chump each turn. <laughs> uh, and five, no, okay, now five five is a reasonable body against Eldrazi these days, sure. right? Beats up on everything and trades with Smasher. So if you're trying to play Tiny Robots versus Eldrazi, and that is a matchup I do not understand the intricacies of, but my instincts tell me that you might be better off just going big and fast in that matchup. I can't confirm or deny that with testing results. You know, it's so interesting. I, but I just but I know that five five is kind of a touchstone for that matchup. This only costs one mana, then you could use it with Artificer's Intuition. Uh, is that Artificer's Intuition? The survival of the fittest yeah. for one mana artifacts. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, you know that'd be sort of a way to get rid of it in the early game and then find it in the late game when you just want to just spread them out. Oh, uh, that's interesting. But, You're right, but that's not the case. Yeah. Causes me to question though how they how they determine cost for this deck this card I mean because there's uh, there's obviously a certain well we just want to make it outlandishly more than the mana cost but why doesn't it cost one or why isn't it six six yeah. <laughs> right and they, they must have been I I can't imagine they were balancing for standard. Yeah. I can't imagine this card's even remotely playable in standard. And even if 
it was playable, quote unquote, you're talking about it. You're you're not going to be able to get Hellbent in standard any faster than turn four. Yeah, it's not like there's a card to like empty your discard your hand like Lions Eye. Well, not discard your hand. There is one. There is one new red card in the set that is Nahiri's. Uh, what is it? Wrath. Nahiri's Wrath, where you can. It's like Firestorm. You can discard any number of cards. Well, I was going to say for but zero mana. Yeah. So you- not for yeah, not for free. That card costs three. So. I guess in standard you could play this construct on tier two and then Nahiri's Wrath on three and you would be helmet. attack. Well, but the problem was that Nahiri's Wrath requires X target creatures and our planeswalkers. Jeez. And um, my instincts tell me that in money games this is gonna be the only creature in play. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not a winning proposition. I'm sorry, sidetrack. I, I just think this card is you could put together a deck that would reliably achieve the hellbent. But in most matchups, it's probably that's probably an inferior deck. Can I put you down for zero? Yep. Let's move on to one Geyer Reach Sanitarium. Legendary Land. Tap to add colorless to your mana pool. Two generic and tap. Each player draws a card, then discards a card. This card is Miko Koro. Yeah. Except everybody discards the card they just drew. <laughs> and Miko Koro is a vintage playable card. The most, not most, but a recent famous appearance was at the last Champs Top 8, where uh, Bobby Green took second place with Miko Koro in his deck. And that was notably, because that was a Thieves-style deck with um, with Notion Thief and Consecrated Sphinx. Those two cards are the reason, mostly, the reason why Miko Koro is playable in Vintage, but only on a fringe basis. In fact, there hasn't been another Top 8 for Miko Koro since late last year. There hasn't been one since December of 2015. So Mikakuro has a two activation cost and legendary. This is also legendary and has a two activation cost. Exactly. Except you have to discard. So it's like exactly. strictly inferior, almost, almost not strictly because you may want to di- you may want to discard. No. This okay. This card is better when you have consecrated Sphinx in play. True or Notion Thief. That is to say, it's better in the sense that, yeah, it's better in the sense that both players are getting one fewer card, but you're still drawing cards. So with with Consecrated Sphinx in play, if you activate Miko Koro, your opponent draws one card and you draw five. With this card and Consecrated Sphinx in play, your opponent draws and discards for a net of zero, and you draw five and discard one for a net of four. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, it's um, it's the same net between you and your opponent, but your opponent's not gaining anything with this one. With Notion Thief, it gets even better, as you said. With Notion Thief, they just discard a card with this thing. That's pretty brutal. With Miko Koro and Notion Thief, you just draw two. With this and Notion Thief, they discard one, and you draw one and discard. I'm sorry, you draw two and discard one. Excuse yeah, me. but in all other, all other circumstances, it's usually better to not have to discard a card. Unless you... Well, I mean, uh, unless that's part yeah, of your unless deck. Unless it's part of your deck. There's certainly decks where you know you have graveyard effects, but as a yeah. general matter, people would prefer, as a general prefer to not have to discard once drawn. Just drawing is just, just more so, power. There are certain uses for Miko Koro in grindy games where both players' hands are full. If your opponent has seven cards, activating Miko Koro on their end step is frequently yeah. frequently and it's has no drawback because they're just going to discard down the hand size. Right. This card doesn't have that that one use case. <clears throat> and in fact, this card runs the risk of if your opponent has graveyard base effects, you could be helping them as much, if not more, as you're helping yourself. Which I guess is a similar thing you could say about Miko Koro too. <laughs> if you're doing it on their end step to put them at eight cards, if they've got graveyard base effects, then you're helping them too. I just I, I think that in general you wouldn't play this over Miko 
Toro. So Mikaku represents basically an upper bound on this card's frequency of play in the vintage format. Interesting. I imagine that some people will be more. Some people think differently about the interaction of these kind of things than Notion Thief. I I predict that some other players will be more attracted to just making your opponent discard as opposed to drawing two yourself. Because this card plus Notion Thief can get into a soft upkeep lock, right? The kind of Chains of Mephistopheles yeah. lock where your opponent only ever gets to play That's instance true. again. I mean, it's That's a true. corner case, yeah. and probably minor, but well, I guess in a in a Notion Thief deck, it's not that much of a corner case, though, right? Because a Notion Thief deck is going to be the sort of deck that has um, Dak Faden, and it's going to be the sort of deck that can empty its opponent's hand with reliability. Once you get to them having an empty hand and you having an Ocean Thief, this card, I think, is superior. I would rather they don't draw any more cards than I draw two a turn. So in that context, I think this one wins out. But you're talking about winning out over a card that doesn't see any play right now. Let's look at how much Notion Thief there is, though, to try and level set. Notion Thief is is quite popular in a lot of contexts. It's not always just in Miko Koro decks these days. So so the numbers might be artificially high. We're just going to have to try and tease out what they really mean. In 2016, Notion Thief has put up dozens of top eights and they're across numerous archetypes tc decks titles being keeper control slaver jace control rogue fish gush storm gush mentor i mean it's it's used a little bit in everything almost but miko koro is not being used in those decks and also i would point out that notion thief is far more popular than consecrated sphinx is consecrated sphinx has only put up one two three four five top eights this year i mean i totally agree with you that if you have motion thief or whatever in play consecrated sphinx you'd mm-hmm. rather have this but here's the thing i mean mm-hmm. even if, i'm not sure i'm not sure that's true objectively i i tend to agree with your premise that it is but even if it is true that doesn't mean this is better than Mikakoro because Mikakoro oh, sure. might help you both find the Notion Thief and protect it better. You know, just it's hard to say. I think. Yeah, I agree. I, and it can't objectively say one is better than the yeah. other. Yeah, I, I think that in general, though, again, drawing and not having to discard is perceived as better. Now, of course, if your opponent has like no cards in hand and you have like a bunch of cards in hand, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think with proper deck construction, you can make the Sanitarium better. And Mikakoro. So, so do you think? Let me just. Do you think Mikakoro is a better card than the Sanitarium, or do you think the Sanitarium is better? Just in the abstract, the difference is clear, right? You couldn't have a, a clearer case of two cards that are nearly identical with one key difference. So you have a stark uh, choice. Honestly, which card is better? I, I'm having a. I'm having a hard time separating <laughs> how I would use the cards from to answer your question. There's no correct answer in the sure, abstract. Sure, sure. I, I'm confident saying that. But because vintage has become so graveyard based, I feel like I can I can abuse my sanitarium better than my opponent can. Even if we both have graveyard effects, the fact that I'm choosing I, the timing. I think that's a, that's an important thing. So you're saying sort of like if you design your deck around it, you can make this more abusive for you. I think it's so dangerous. I think it's so dangerous. Do you really want to be putting cards in your opponent's graveyard like opening up their well, their yog will their what delve spells yeah. that's a that's a secondary question though right i mean you could say the same thing about miko koro do you really want to be putting cards in that, your opponent's hand why... the answer to both questions is no yeah. so it's so the answer to how you use these cards is inextricably linked to <laughs> other ways you built your deck right <laughs> I, I, 
Well, for for example, this the the sanitarium becomes better if you have other discards in your deck. If you have therapy or thoughtsees and you're looking at their deck, then you know whether or not them milling is going to be very bad. I think I think we maybe stumbled onto a philosophical quandary here. I don't know if we could actually okay. resolve the answer to this question. Well, I, I think I feel like you're asking a question that doesn't help us very well, much, though. So. In, in terms I of deck construction, I, I thought believe... it would. Now, I, yeah, now I realize well, from your response that it's not. I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say Mikakura is just a better card. Because oh, no, I, that's, you can't possibly okay, say that. Okay, I can't see <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it goes back to the whole there's no such thing as a magic card without context, sure, sure, right? Sure. So, But I am comfortable saying that Gaia Reach Sanitarium has more power in the properly constructed deck than Miko Koro does. Be, primarily because of the interaction of Notion Thief, but I also think you can build your deck to abuse the, the looting that you're forcing upon your opponent more so than you can just giving them one card in their so, hand. I think it's easier to, to, to fight them getting a benefit off the looting than just one more card. It's interesting. I mean, I think the, the Mikakuru, you've already come up with an example using it on your opponent's end stuff when they have seven cards. It's kind of oh, anti-library, yeah. right? Your opponent has seven yeah. cards. You get an additional card. They don't. They get to filter. I think I think that the, I think in general I feel pretty confident that Mikakoru's making you not have to discard is in a broader set of contexts going to be viewed as better in the broad in the uh, broadest I think that possible. These, I, I, I don't have a high I, degree of confidence in I that. I see some I see some logic there, but I would argue that these cards are narrow use to begin with. Yeah. They're not in there for their flexibility. They're in there for corner cases that are amplifying the power of other interactions. If you get Notion Thief down, then you you want to start. I I will take all the guy reach sanitariums you'll give me if I have Notion Thief in something. play, right? What if what if your opponent has what if your opponent has a standstill in play? Which card would you rather mm-hmm. have? I I'd rather have Miku Koro. Me too. What if your yeah. opponent has a m- m- Mystic Remora in play? I would rather have Sanitarium. Interesting, me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, these are funny. These are funny examples. I mean, but uh, I, I don't think they're very instructive. No, no, I I, just, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying to get at how people are going to play this sure, card. But I'm pro, I'm, I, I think they're instructive in this sense. I'm trying to probe. I'm trying to probe the differences. I'm not saying they're going to. From these examples, we're going to derive some sort of universal formula. <laughs> but I, I'm trying to sort of just test. You know, like where, where. Where are these? Where's which one stronger and which one weaker? Because yeah. the difference is this is close. it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. I give you that, but it's not like it, it's not as though we just put one or one or the other of these lands in all our decks. Yeah. That's the thing. Well, two more questions. So if you have library, in play, I'd okay. rather have because you're getting more likely to get more out. Like if I have library, sure. if you have dark sure. confidant in play, I think I would. What which would you rather have? If you have if you have dark confidant in play, yeah. that's a it's a really kind of antithetical I, if I have Dark Confidant in play, I don't feel like I'm activating either of these lands. Interesting. You, really? You know what I mean? Not not because there's a drawback yeah. necessarily, but because it, I'm already drawing extra cards, so I want to be using the mana. Well, I would rather have the Sanitarium Dark Confidant. If I'm if I'm drawing dead off my Confidant and I just need to see more confident, cards, then yeah, confident, I'd, rather, I'd rather have the Sanitarium. If you're plus one, you don't want to give your opponent to get back into it, right? So it's kind of like yeah. if you have yeah. an advantage, you would rather use the Sanitarium because you want to limit your opponent's capacity to, to benefit right sure. so if you have a recurring advantage the sanitarium is better if you if, if it's parity or they're ahead you want miko exactly because you can control the timing exactly exactly yeah 
Interesting. Yeah. So it may just be that's a fair summation. It may just be who has the advantage. If you feel yeah. like you're behind, you want Mikakura. If you're ahead, you want the sanitarium. That's interesting. And that's why the notion thief slash sphinx, because they turn both of them into the activation favors you. Yeah. So <laughs> Well, I think we got well, anyway. somewhere with that discussion. Uh, I, I do, but unfortunately, Miko Koro is just not being played much right now. The archetype in question isn't using Miko Koro. I do think that the Sanitarium is better, and Notion Thief is heavily played. So I feel like people who aren't playing Miko Koro today would toss a Sanitarium into a Notion Thief deck. That's what I feel. Not everyone, but more than zero. Uh, so I'm feeling non-zero about this, just primarily because of how popular Notion Thief is. But I don't think it's yeah I don't think it's a, a sure thing or a staple necessarily. Mostly because as we've covered in so many contexts, the opportunity cost of lands and decks like this is so high. Uh, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with one. What do you think? Well, how many Mikakoros did you say were in the top whatever in the last three months? None. I'm gonna go zero. none this year. I'm gonna go zero then. Okay. Mm-mm. I think Miko Koro is useful from a comparison standpoint, but I think you it's not the only driver of the numbers. But we'll see. Last up, our last card for Eldritch Moon is Thalia, Heretic Cathar. For two white, legendary creature human soldier, she is 3-2. First strike, creatures and non-basic lands your opponents control enter the battlefield tapped. This card has many a vintage deck developer very excited. And for good reason, I think. Let's get some of the basics out of the way. Two white is clearly a vintage playable mana cost. We're overrun with Eldrazi Displacers of late <laughs> and Monastery Mentors of late, but also for a while now. It's, it's an imminently playable mana cost. 3-2 is a healthy body, especially when you factor in first strike. It means that it'll take down Displacers, assuming they can't blink her, and it'll take down most other middling creatures one-on-one. And she'll even take down Mentors unless they have two spells. But that ability... Creatures and non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped. Now, we've seen this effect, or ones like it before. Isn't the original one Kismet? Kismet from Legends, which says, I think it's all your opponent's permanents come into play tapped. Oh, oh no, it's just artifacts, creatures, and lands played by your opponent. You're thinking of Root Maze. And then, and then later on, there was Root Maze, which is, uh, which is symmetrical. It just says artifacts and lands enter the battlefield tapped. And then there was Orb of Dreams which says all permanents under the battlefield tapped. And then there was Frozen Aether, which is just a color-shifted Kismet, I think, which says, yeah, it's just the same as Kismet, but it's blue. So this concept is not new. This specific orientation of creatures and non-basic lands is new, and applying to just your opponent, we haven't had a good, strong card like that in a while. This is supremely disruptive to vintage mana base. Yeah. (laughs) Supremely. Because if your deck isn't filled with non-basic lands, like Eldrazi and Shops, or Dredge, for example, then it's filled with fetch lands, mostly targeted at fetching dual lands, which get doubly hosed by this effect. And then add on top of all that, that the kind of decks that this would go in would be just mana disruptive decks to begin with, having the younger Svelter Thalia in play, usually. Svelter, yep. And adding all of that to the fact that it also taps their creatures. So if they're trying to keep pace with you, their creatures are coming in a turn behind, and Pyromancer tokens and Mentor tokens all come in tapped so they don't get to play defense. <laughs> that this card just slices and dices. 
Yeah, the, you know, so we we the casting cost as you suggested is playable. We have Rin Wingmare, which has appeared. You know, mm-hmm. this card is um, it readily fits into White Eldrazi decks, right? It also yeah, readily fits into certainly. human decks. Yet another yep. reason to play humans uh, or White Weenie. Um, or maybe call it white hate bears. Um, the first strike three two is is very good. First strike is very good. Uh, we've yeah, it really we've is. seen how good it is when when the format is defined by token generation. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, yeah, I mean the fact that all the tokens generated are going to be tapped is just is gigantic. And as you said, the root maze effect. I mean, this is root maze, right? Root maze no, because root artifacts. maze only affects lands and artifacts, artifacts. and it's okay. symmetrical. Yeah, and it's symmetrical, and this is only on your opponent. This is this is a beating. Um, this card, this card does so much of what the Eldrazi type decks and the human decks are trying to do because it disrupts your opponent's mana. It synergizes with your own uh, wasteland strip mine tangle wire type effects, and it and it prevents their creatures from standing in your way reliably because one of the ways that Mentor, for example, can beat a yeah. human's deck or an Eldrazi deck is just with a fast mentor, and, and, and this prevents that from being. Uh, I mean, this prevents that from being nearly as and effective. As what you were going to say on top of that is that with Displacer, with this, oh, effectively yeah. can take out a creature for indefinitely. Like a Gristlebrand will never be able to attack. Yeah, that's a good point. This is like a free Displacer activation on all their creatures the turn they come but out, with this, and then you get to untap and use the Displacer that you've got anyway. Yeah, Jeez. so you can actually use it to tie up particular colors of mana or other things indefinitely. You can prevent Gristlebrand from ever attacking. Yeah, and ever blocking. Yeah, and ever blocking. This card is clearly <laughs> vintage playable. I think it will yeah. clearly see vintage play. I just don't know the extent to which it will. Yeah, it's it's easy to say this will see vintage play because there's already at least two <laughs> decks that really are hungering for this yeah. effect. Yeah. Right? Humans and Eldrazi are just White Eldrazi. slobbering <laughs> to, to put this in. <laughs> I mean, good grief. <clears throat> The, the the only question for me is what do they cut right i feel like right. you were pretty down on on in the humans deck you were pretty down on mantis rider and oh I, yeah i think i should yeah that, that can go i, I <laughs> seems like a big upgrade I think this is better than Ridden Wingmare. i think that's a, yeah i do too i mean i think you can sh- in, in white eldrazi lists i think you can shave whatever however many wing mares you've got which is usually only one or two yeah and i think you exactly. can shave one of either displacer or containment priest or whatever other hate bear you've got on turn two if you've got spirit of the lab for example I think you can shave some combination of those to make room for three of these pretty easily. Yeah, I think you're right. Four, four might be pushing it, but I think some players will use. No, I don't four. think you want four. I think this is a two or three. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Another thing that this promotes too is this card strengthens Crucible Wasteland to a considerable degree. Oh, yeah, Crucible Wasteland is just game over with this thing. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I I played. We've all played in. You and I have played in environments where Maze has seen a lot of play. To have it be completely <laughs> asymmetrical is just totally nuts. It really is. It's so unfair. This card is so demoralizing. I haven't even played against it yet, and I'm already upset. <laughs> how many how many white Eldrazis are in our last the last quarter of beta? Well, not as many as you might think. I checked on how many displacers made top eight appearances, and it's only been six. Okay. Well, now I mean, in pa- so clearly in paper has been lagging behind uh, Magic yeah. Online. It's you yep. know 
and but but we know from decks from performances like the nyse also which now that i look at it the nyse didn't make these results which, eternal extravaganza is in which, here but not NYSE. and nyse had like two white eldrazi right oh it had brass man and was there another white eldrazi in the top eight i, I forgot yeah so that's um, at least one so yeah so these are we know these numbers are a well, little understated so we'll, i'll just project out eight i don't know it's hard to predict i'll just yeah that's fine reasonable um but then the trick is is that I mean, you and i both believe this is a a slam dunk for White Eldrazi, but I think it also goes in humans, yeah. and I think you can also come up with a case well, for this in some well, other. How many Thalias are in the last quarter? Put it that way. Oh yeah, well that's a good question. Good, good grief. <laughs> Funny, we keep saying Thalia. We've been so. Oh yeah, um, we'll be more careful going next. We've been so. Well, this so Thalia 2.0 is going to go right alongside her, <laughs> her former self. Could is this the first time that we've had a legendary creature? that was consistently played right next to another version of that same character. Just, I mean, just Jace, Jace's. But you can't do that. Yeah. You can't have two Jace's play. Uh, I take that back. You can have Jace Friends Prodigy and then a Planeswalker Jace, but they yeah. never both Planeswalker. So I suppose that's partially it. Um, Thalia has put up, let me see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. That was Eternal Masters number 7 in Melbourne. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Looks like 18, but that's going back to... That's year to date. That's going back to January. All right. Uh, uh, so in, in in this quarter, so starting with April 1st, there, most of them are since then, actually. Just subtract one, two, three, four. Yeah. I'll so just, 14 in the second quarter. I'll just take, I, I'm probably way low, but I'll just take eight. I'll stick with my original prediction. It doesn't, it sure? doesn't matter. I mean, that does, that does seem low. It doesn't matter. I mean, we both predict this will see play. We don't, I can't predict exactly where it's going to land. I, I I don't know. Well, I'm going to go with... So here's the thing. Do we think that every deck that had Thalia in it is going to play this? would run this Thalia no, as well? No, but I think it's going to... My, odds are it's not 100%. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but my guess is it's above 50%. Yep. But you got so, six displacers in the last whatever, so... you know, Yeah, I because there were other Thalia I don't, decks I don't know before. if this is going to go into every human's deck either. No, I think it goes into every Eldrazi deck, but not every yep. human's deck. So let's say... Okay, so now that we said all that, eight doesn't seem that low, but I still think it's on the low side. I'm going to go with a dozen. Okay, we've got a nice little still, spread there. I feel like we've got the right idea. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I feel like the X factors could be, that's because I'm already setting up myself for failure here. I feel like the X factors could be, we don't know how the Eldrazi versus tribal Eldrazi versus Thought Not Seer Shops uh, trifecta is going to shake out, right? One of those decks could emerge as being very dominant or not. So far, it's not. So far, they're sharing the limelight. And the other thing is, I also believe that there is another kind of archetype that could crop up. You could see a white-based aggro control just play this card. I, I'm going to stop short of saying mentor, but you could see a, a, a white-black, white-red, white-green something that isn't Eldrazi, but is also a Thalia deck and isn't humans necessarily. Yeah, I, I, I think it's possible, I, but humans, as you said about Cavern, <laughs> humans is such a powerful this, synergy. This card is so nuts. I might be, I, I, your point about uh, Crucible Wasteland effects is really insane. I mean, the fact that you can go turn to this off an uh, ancient tomb and then and then immediately begin wastelanding anything that's untapped without having to worry about your wastelands be tapped as well. That's the, yeah. and even even think about Ghost Quarter with this. Ghost Quarter is fine because because wow. because yeah, okay. no, because their lands come into play tapped. So you you take out an untapped land for a tapped land. 
Well, uh, uh, their non-basics come into play tapped. Ghost Porter gives them a basic. Yeah. Uh, So I I think you want to avoid that unless you're certain they have no more targets. But I do think that the kind of deck that would have this Thalia 2.0 and Crucible would have access to a Ghost Porter or more or two. Because that's just that kind of deck. It's worth noting that Thalia and Crucible don't actually go together right now. Yeah. That's that's a rare interaction. And this bigger Thalia promotes that interaction, right? So there could be a halfway point between Shops and White Eldrazi that is promoted by this card. There could be a seven Thalia deck that also has Crucibles. And whether or not it's a workshop deck, I don't think. I don't think it's a workshop deck, but it goes in a slightly different direction than the existing Eldrazi decks have been. A slightly different direction. <laughs> I mean, adding two crucibles to that deck is not a is not a brain, major brainstorm. <clears throat> this is pretty exciting. I'm very I'm very interested to see where this goes. I wonder. So that's the end of our. I wonder if this card would actually ahead. be good in dealing with in the token mirror. You mean in the, like a mentor? Yeah, mirror? because just just on. Well, sure. And this card's a this card's a beating if your opponent if you you and your opponent are both gushing. <laughs> that's true because your opponent's gushes. Uh, the lands have to be replayed tap. Oh, yeah, they don't produce as much mana as yours, and their well, tokens are. Turned that's what I, that's, yours. that's the main point I was getting at. Is yeah. their token creatures all coming to play tapped? Interesting. This card could see a lot of play. I'm I'm pretty stoked. Yeah, I'm not certain I want to try and put it in a mentor deck to fight other no. mentor decks, but it. I mean. It could still be good enough. It's crazy that it could still be good enough. No, no, we'll see. I'm skeptical skeptical about that, but I won't be very surprised if people try it. Well, Steve, that brings us to the end of our Eldritch Moon review. We had far more cards that we were willing to predict play of than we did with Shadows of Innistrad. Good sign. And by far more, I mean one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I guess I was a little more generous than you. Lots of these one ofs are just me and you having a zero. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. In fact, I was more. Yeah, I predicted a higher appearance of every card than you did. <laughs> I'm... I'm getting conservative in my old age. <laughs> I was just going to say something exactly like that. <clears throat> we don't have. I, we've already addressed a lot of our mis- our listener feedback in this episode because many of the cards we discussed were suggested by listeners. But I want to throw out there that two of the cards, one of the cards, I mean, we didn't discuss because our friend Myth responded that that there really wasn't anything good in this set. <laughs> I said all the more reason for you to to tell us what you think, and he said, "Okay, fine, I'll bite." Potential lists for Tree of Perdition plus Triskaidekaphobia combo. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've noticed it, Steve, but Tree, <laughs> Tree of Perdition is a black creature that's 0-13, and it allows you to set target opponent's life total to oh. to exchange, excuse me, so Tree of Perdition's life total with target opponent's life total. So you can, yeah, you can put somebody's life total right at 13 and then kill them with Triskaidekaphobia. <laughs> uh, both of those cards cost four and are utterly unplayable in Vintage, but when combined, they're cost eight and are utterly unplayable in vintage. So there's that. Uh, no myth. I don't think that that's a thing. But thank you for mentioning it. <laughs> Do we have any other listener feedback? There is Steve. There is one listener comment that was from a few episodes ago, and I apologize that I didn't respond to it before now. But Lyle Waldman wrote to us 
uh, responding to a comment you made about differences in magic rules and specifically judging in other cultures. Your anecdote was about the Asia Vintage Championship and how the judges are regarded in Japan. And Lyle commented on that with a specific example. He said, and I'm jumping to the middle here, the one I wanted to point out is MTR 2.3, pregame procedures, specifically item three. Quote, players present their decks to their opponent for additional shuffling. The sideboard, if any, is also presented at this time. This is Lyle now. Yes, sir, you are, according to the MTR, required to present your sideboard. But have you ever seen anyone actually do it? In nope. Japan. But in Japan, <laughs> yeah. presenting your sideboard is rather commonplace. Again, this rule is written not because it's actually expected to ever be enforced, but like last touch, that's his phrase, which is a concept that re- refers to giving your opponent the last touch of your deck to ensure that it's shuffled. He says, like last touch, it's there mostly so that if the opponent says, I want to verify the contents of your sideboard, they have a codified right in the rules to do so. Anyway, with Steve's focus on rules minutiae, I thought you guys would find this interesting. As a side note, while I'm a level two judge myself, I conferred with a level three, three friend of mine who confirmed with me that if you do present your sideboard, you subsequently have a means to appeal DDLP, that is, for extra cards in your deck box beyond those written on your deck list. So you have shown your opponent, this is my sideboard. These other cards in my deck box are not part of this match. Interesting. Because that's not codified in the documents, I'll stop short of stating it's a universal fact, but many judges will waive a DDLP penalty, which is a game loss, in the case the in the case that the penalty is based on extra cards in your deck box if you present your sideboard so it's probably a good deal to do anyway culture so, and rules and all these things get mixed up is kind of the yeah yeah so i want to caution our listeners lyle and us are not saying that this is a certainty but he says in his experience that many judges will waive a penalty for extra cards in your deck box presented. if you have presented your sideboard <laughs> because that's that is a way of confirming this is my sideboard and these other cards are not part of it now we still caution people you know try to avoid having extra cards in your deck box it's just good practice but it's partially because in the states we don't present our sideboards even though that's recommended in the mtr which is very interesting so we'd like to continue to hear more examples of cultural differences in magic especially as it pertains to the rules especially as it pertains to vintage because i I find that stuff fascinating and i know you do too steve thank you for listening to episode 55 of so many insane plays you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com as always and until next time we wish you many insane plays Not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>